welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 44 for February 2015. I am your hostess with the mostest, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is Mike. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Quinn. How are you? I am excellent. It's only been a couple of uh, weeks, actually, since we last recorded, I think. Yeah, our schedule schedule has been a little funny, and we've had alternate recording projects going on, and uh, I feel like we've been recording continuously for a couple of weeks here. (laughs) Probably have. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, we've got some some interesting guests, a few of them today, uh, and it was kind of a matter of coordinating everyone's schedule and saying this is the day we're going to have to do it, and so this is the day we did it. Yeah, this is a kind of a maybe a once-in-a-lifetime event for Apple II fans. Uh, we've got a Beagle Brothers roundtable coming up, which uh, if you can imagine how difficult it was to get uh, almost all of the major members of the uh, Beagle Brothers Glory Days uh, in one room to uh, share their stories and uh, answer questions. Uh, it was fantastic. I can't imagine uh, being able to do that again. So that was great. We had a total of uh, four of them with us today. And there were there were going to be three or four more. And, uh, you know, schedules change and people get busy and, and lives, lives happen. And so a couple of people weren't able to make it that we were expecting uh, to be here. But I think actually that's not, I mean, it's kind of a shame that we won't get their participation in their stories. But as far as just having that many people on a single Skype call at one time can be a bit of a challenge. So I think maybe this was probably kind of a good amount of people to have. And maybe maybe in the future down down the road a little bit, we can round up the other guys and get them to to do something. But yeah, I, uh, I'm really pleased with what the way this went. Um, one of the voices, of course, you'll recognize is uh, Randy Brandt. Uh, he was on the show a couple of months ago. He's been kind of active in the community, uh, the Apple II hobbyist community recently with his uh, iOS remake of iOS Silver. And he was at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, and he checks in on the Apple II f- enthusiasts Facebook page now and then. So great to have him back. And, and I think we kind of, we made the decision to let him sort of, sort of be the, um, the moderator. Yeah. Moderator is a good word. I was thinking more like, um, Host? um cat herder, you know, cat herder. Sort of good. All right. Fair. Um, mainly because, you know, he's, uh, he likes to talk obviously. And he, I think he knew the right questions to ask of people because he was there and, and, you know, the guys have known him for a long time. And so it probably felt more comfortable talking to him directly than if it were me or, or you asking the questions. And I think it still would have been a great interview, but I, it was the right choice to, to let him. So you and I don't actually talk that much during the interview. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Apologies to Randy. We kind of uh, didn't warn him. Uh, we kind of decided <laughs> at the last moment that, uh, hey, why don't you lead this discussion? And uh, he, he, to his credit, stepped right up and did it. And uh, yeah, I, he's, I guess we could nominate him the official Beagle Brothers historian because he <laughs> seems to have a uh, really amazing recall of everything. And uh, I think he's also probably the Beagle Brothers uh, comedian by the sounds of it. But yeah. uh, that's, I guess, uh, uh, he's one of many at that company. Some of the stuff has, has been ground they've covered before, but we got a couple of stories that hadn't been told before. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, there's some good ones. It, it ends on a great one about Bill Mensch, but we won't spoil it. <laughs> You'll have to listen. Hi, this is Gary Little, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. So we got a special, I don't know if you want to call this an interview because it's a bunch of people actually. We'll call it a roundtable, maybe a reunion. 
you'll recognize one voice. I think we had him on just a couple of shows ago. Of course, he's Mr. Uh, Randy Brandt, and he is here with, uh, well, uh, a special group of people. Uh, Randy, why don't you kind of go around and introduce everybody else? Sure. Well, I'm going to start with the uh, sage, and that would be Tom Weiser. And uh, he, he's got the look for a uh, wise man. And uh, Tom goes back to the very earliest days of Beagle Brothers, along with Mark Simonson. And Mark is joining. Are you joining us from Wyoming, Mark? Yes, I'm in Saratoga, Wyoming. He's in Wyoming. Tom, I lost track. He used to be in New York. Where are you? Now? I'm in New York City. Oh, you are back in New York. You may, it, it, it's so authentic, you may hear sirens or something at some point during the podcast. All right. <laughs> and then uh, Alan is, uh, is joining us. Alan Bird is uh, joining us from California. I'm in Denver. So for everyone who hasn't figured it out yet, we're here with some of the, uh, the the Beagle Brothers, and we're here to talk about memories and software and those awesome ads that you flip open and, and nibble, and they just drew your eye in, and those two-line two programs, you type them in, and your Apple II would do these wonderful, amazing things. I'm going to go ahead and uh, defer, I think, for most of this to, to Randy, because Randy knows everybody else, and he knows the right questions to ask to get the best answers. Well, we've got a we've got an interesting group, and I think, as far as all four of us chatting together, it, it does go back a couple of decades. I mean, it was probably a Kansas fest back then, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you all agree that? Uh, well, obviously, Mark and Alan and I uh, were together in San Diego up until 1990, 90, 92. That would have been the most recent uh, one when we saw Tom, at least. I think uh, it'd be best to do a little bit of a history, maybe chronologically, and therefore, since I'm the newbie, uh, I showed up in 85. Let's go back and uh, just talk a little bit about those first two products, uh, Mark and, and Tom, since we have Alan here now. Uh, let's re just redo a little bit of that history and as to how you guys got involved with Beagle Brothers. You want to go first, Tom? Well, I'll, I'll, let me talk a little bit. I, I, when... Uh when Mike mentioned the uh, the old ads and the two-liner programs, we have to admit that all of that predates the core of us. That was all the work of Bert Kersey, who was the founder of Beagle Brothers. Uh, and, of course, at the time he founded it, it was him and his wife. I don't. There, there were no brothers involved that I know of. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. It was it, it, it was a terrific company. Using humor and uh, and uh, uh, great ads, and uh, certainly that's what attracted me to try to get my software published there. And uh, um, I was happy that I happened to send it in the day Burke decided to take outside authors. How about you, Mark? Well. Um, when I wrote Flex Text, I didn't know how I was going to sell it or what I was going to do with it. And uh, while I was working on it, in fact, I was working at GTE with Alan Bird at the time. We had both graduated from BYU and gone off to an R&D lab they had in Phoenix, North Phoenix. So I, I noticed that another company had a product that let you do 70 characters across in a word processor, and it was Sierra Online in Coarse Gold, California. So I sent it to them, and uh, over a period of weeks... I was sitting on pins and needles. They finally responded and said, no, we don't think we want to sell it. Maybe it's, it's very nice. Maybe you ought to contact somebody who sells utilities. And I had been doing some homework and thought, hey, Beagle Brothers looks like maybe the leading company in utilities on the Apple II. And so I sent it to Bert. 
And uh, he and Sharon responded immediately that they'd love to sell it. They asked for um, a user manual, some documentation. And I thought, oh, my, I have nothing and I don't have a printer, <laughs> nor do I have a word processor. <laughs> so I had to run out and buy a printer and a word processor, threw some documentation together. And, uh, yeah, over a period, a very short period of time after that, they put it on the market uh, with frame up. Very exciting times. It would have been a much better story, Mark, if you'd have said, and so I wrote a word processor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't didn't even know how to do that or didn't have the time to do it. I don't remember which. So that arrived at the Beagle office and uh, same time as as Tom's. How long long do you think you waited before Bert got back to you? Oh, he got back within days. It was very quick. It was... It was uh, it was so exciting. It was a very exciting time. That was, as I recall, the summer of '82, uh, and and Flex Text and FrameUp went on the market around September of '82, as I recall. And then Tom, tell us about your products that got you connected at Beagle. Well, I'm, so that first one was FrameUp, which was, as I said, uh, uh, a, a a very early prototype of PowerPoint. Part of the the problem of trying to do a PowerPoint on the Apple II at that time was the disk operating system was so slow that when you press the button to change the slide, it might take uh, 10 or 15 seconds. So part of the trick was figuring out how to get get the uh, the uh, disk to load the the slides faster. So once I'd figured that out, there was I real, realized, and other people were doing it as well. There was a way to rewrite the uh, DOS 3.3 so that everything would work fast. And then uh, the trick for me compared to my competitors was that I had to write it in such a way that it didn't mess up any of Bert's peaks and pokes to DOS, <laughs> uh, of which he had hundreds. Uh, so I, I had to squeeze it all in areas he hadn't messed with. So, uh, but but it was possible and it worked. And uh, as software goes, that's that's been that was where I peaked. These other guys, all three of you, uh, then went on to much greater glory. And um, in this early history, the other piece of it that involved me was that Bert, at that time, was writing a column in Soft Talk called DOS Talk. And he told me that he didn't want to do it anymore. And I said, well, when you quit, tell them that I'll do it. And he did. And they contacted me. And somehow I got this column. So I kind of headed off in the journalism way. And you guys uh, stayed and became the true Beagle Brothers. (laughs) So, uh, Alan, tell us a little bit about how you connected up with uh, Beagle. Okay, sure. Thank, uh, Thank you, Randy. Well, as Mark mentioned, he and I worked together at uh, GTE in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, we were recent college graduates, and anyway, when Mark got this opportunity to go to work for Beagle Brothers in San Diego, I was I was excited for him, and I was uh, certainly a bit jealous. I thought it was uh, I thought it'd be a great opportunity, and I must have made that uh, known to him before he left because uh, about six after six months after uh, he went to work for Beagle Brothers, he. Uh, called me up and asked me if I wanted to come work there. I, I think he was actually getting tired of doing tech support. He just wanted somebody to replace him. So. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, uh, that, 
that, that was my job was uh, answering the phone at Beagle Brothers. And, you know, that's um, I think that's been one of the actually one of the biggest benefits of my programming career, because, um, you know, I, I, I had to uh, sit there and listen to people and, you know, why they couldn't understand how to use the software and, you know, maybe ways we could make it better. So that was that was a real eye opener for me. It was, it was a great lesson. Anyway, I had to had to go out and buy an Apple II. I didn't have one before then, but uh, uh, certainly once I did, I was hooked. And uh, then once I uh, started working at Beagle Brothers, I in my free time, then I would uh, I would develop software. My first program was one that Bird asked me to do. It was a it was a disk cataloging program, and <laughs> you know we all have to start somewhere. <laughs> it was a pretty poor program. <laughs> But fortunately, things went up from there. So that's uh, interesting. Sorry to jump okay, in there, Alan. That uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, uh, how uh, being exposed to end users was was uh, formative for your programming. I think uh, if uh, if anyone's ever worked with QA departments, it's a, a very similar experience where you know you think your program is pretty great, but you put it in front of people who don't know anything about it or people that aren't necessarily technical, and all of your previous preconceptions about how great it was are instantly shattered and it's a it's a very humbling experience to see real people using software that you've until then only has existed kind of inside your own head and you had this vision of how people would use it and yeah it all goes out the window very quickly yeah certainly that was valuable feedback for me what's interesting about that is the transition was very similar uh I've told my story before, kind of how I connected with Beagle Brothers on the on the podcast. But when I walked in the door the first time at the office when Bert brought me in, um, he introduced me to a guy on the phone named Alan Bird. And uh, a matter of weeks later, he got out of tech support, and I got the tech support job. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so Bert said, "Yeah, Alan would like to like because I was I was working at home in in my apartment in El Cajon, and and Bert calls me up and goes, "Would you be willing to come into the office? Alan would like to get out of out of the office." <laughs> and so I don't know how long uh, I don't know how long I did tech support. Uh, probably, I know I wrote Big U around that time, and then once I went to royalties, probably in '86. So I, was, I probably did it about six months also, and then they brought in I think I, Mark Dion. Actually, Randy, I, I have a slight correction to your story. Okay. It wasn't that I wanted to get out of tech support. It's that Beagle Brothers fired me. <laughs> Beagle that's, Brothers that's wanted kind to of move a long you. Story that I went. No, no, I actually got fired. But I thought that was later. Um, it, it might have been. Oh. Yeah, it was later. No, I was still doing tech support when I got fired. Yeah. That sounds like a <laughs> oh, story we need to hear. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a little disagreement between me and um and Sharon Kersey, so it was just over one thing, but it was it was enough that I got fired. Thankfully, he came back. The story ends well. <laughs> All right, so maybe when Bert said Alan wants to move out of tech support, he meant to uh, you know, <laughs> save his hide. But uh, yeah, time time blurs those memories. But anyway, I I did come in and I also did tech support and had some interesting times there. And then uh, to keep uh, keep Tom in the loop here, I think we should let him uh, tell us a little bit about the transition to uh, some conferences that Beagle was heavily involved in. So Tom, why don't you uh, touch on a bit of that before we dive into the timeout world? Uh, you're talking about Kansas Fest. These guys are big Kansas Fest people, and that's still living. So the roots of it had a different name. Why don't you talk about the very early days? The very early days. Well, in the very early days, after Soft Talk went bankrupt, the magazine that uh, 
Adbert Kersey's column and then mine, uh, I decided uh, that, that there was still room for a publication uh, like that in the Apple world, and I started an eight-page newsletter named very similarly to this podcast. It was originally called Open Apple. After several years of doing that, in addition to the newsletter, we then started selling books, and then we added software and hardware, and then somewhere came this idea of doing a summer conference. So we put out some feelers about that, and uh, folks seemed interested. Uh, I lived in Kansas City at the time, and so uh, we made an arrangement with a college called Avila College that had empty dorms in the summertime to uh, rent uh, classrooms and uh, dorm rooms uh, there. Got a bunch of people to come. That that was how it started. I think it was originally called the. Uh, by then, by then we had changed the name from Open Apple to, to A2 Central, and it was may have in the beginning been called the A2 Central Developers Conference. I think. Yes, that's what I recall. But everybody from the beginning, I think, called it Kansas Fest, even though Avila College was in Missouri. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> My my company's office was in on the other side of the state line in Overland Park, Kansas. So that must be where it got the name, uh, and it still has it, and it's still held in Missouri, as far as I can tell. Every year in July, and in fact, you had mentioned uh, uh, your Open Apple newsletter and the name of this podcast, and and I just would like to thank you for for allowing us to to use that name because. I know you you weren't aware of it, but we we did name the podcast. Uh, you know, in addition to the the key on the Apple IIe keyboard and and Waz's idea of of an open architecture, part of the reason we chose Open Apple was because we love that Open Apple newsletter so much. Well, I uh, thank you for the tribute. In Roman days, didn't tribute involve some cash? <laughs> <laughs> Royalties. <laughs> no. No, I was I was going to launch into a story that has nothing to do with Eagle Brothers. <laughs> I, I won't. But uh, someday we can talk about uh, how much Apple liked us having the open Apple name. Apparently, they don't care anymore. You haven't got any letters from their lawyers. No, no, we haven't. But I bet back then they were a little bit more litigious about that sort of thing. That reminds me of the original. The original Beagle logo, as you guys recall, was the Beagle Brothers Microsoftware, and of course, a certain company in Redmond got all over Bert's case for <laughs> daring to have Microsoftware on his logo. Yeah, actually, I had to I had to deal with that when I bought the company uh, because it still was not resolved. I had to enter into an agreement with Microsoft that we had a certain period of time to sell off everything with the old logo, and and that uh, from a certain time forward, it would no longer say Microsoftware. <laughs> Even with a space in there. Yeah. Well, related to these these two guys in the history is I got my start at Beagle Programming. It was actually a product done by these two gentlemen collaborating, so that's kind of interesting. All three of us uh, had contributions. And uh, Mark, as you recall, uh, the name of that product was? You're talking about Time Out? <laughs> no, no, no. Back, back, back earlier. Timeout was was only a, a gleam in Alan's eye back then. Oh, are you talking about a certain macro program? What are you talking about? Back earlier, earlier. I'm talking oh. 1985. Uh, 
I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> extra K. Oh. <laughs> you and Alan both had stuff on Extra K. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You wrote uh, Extra Apple, I think it was called, that would let you uh, switch between uh, two right. different banks and the 128K one. So you could actually run ProDOS in one and, and DOS 3.3 or PronoDOS, I guess, in the other one. And I wrote a little program that would copy your basic program. So you could load in a DOS 3.3 program you had, switch to ProDOS, use my little program to copy it over and then save it as a ProDOS app. And so it was a little early converter. Sorry, I I totally forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) It was my my first Beagle published code, so it was big for me. I was actually hired to write uh, documentation on it. Alan, what did you do on Extra K? Oh, you're stretching my memory. Your extra K head. <laughs> That's a good question. Do you remember, Mark? I mean, I don't even remember what you did. On that I, I don't remember. You know, if I were in my Utah home, I could go into my storage room and pull extra K off the shelf and read all the programs off of it. But I'm not there. Yeah. I think, Alan, didn't, didn't you do something to use the extra memory for, like, expanding your variable space or something in AppleSoft? Yeah, you're right. I think it was called extra variables. So oh, it gave yeah. you lots more room for your data. Wow, Randy, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I live in the past. I'm like Tom, you know, I, I, I peaked early. You guys have gone on to great glory. Tom, Tom and I live in the past. Actually, Randy, you know, looking back, I mean, it is totally amazing. I mean, we were limited to, was a 48K of RAM to write our programs and stuff, although certainly um, later on we were able to add more memory. I mean, these days you can't hardly fit a small image, you know, in 48K. I mean, uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing what uh, how things have changed. Yeah, I've done the math sometimes on, uh, you know, how much money it would cost to get the amount of RAM in my phone based on what I paid for my first floppy, which was like uh, $2.89, I think, for 144K floppy disk. But anyway, that brings us to uh, the uh, mid-80s. And then... Uh, you guys might as well touch briefly on on Software Touch since that is part of the Beagle history. So, Mark, why don't you uh, discuss a little bit of the uh, birth and death of uh, the Software Touch? Okay, I'll, I'll say what I remember, and then, Alan, you can fill in the gaps. Alan did have a falling out with uh, Beagle over something really simple and, and stupid. And anyway, we talked about it, and uh, Alan is a good friend and was a good friend, and uh, I wanted to keep programming with him. And so we started a little company called The Software Touch. And while Beagle continued to sell all of Alan's prior programs and all of my prior programs, and it was just the two of us, and we, uh, it was funny. We got a little office space and a little secretary, and, and we hired a guy, uh, John Obrick, to do tech support for us because neither one of us wanted to go back to doing tech support. <laughs> and uh, we did that for... About, uh, what was it, Alan, about a year and a half or so? Something like that. Mark, the, one of the memories I have of that is is our wives with two disk drives copying floppy disks oh. and, and putting the labels on them. And Yeah, I forgot about that. So Alan wrote... A, I mean, that's how we started. Yeah, Alan wrote a very impressive piece of software called AutoWorks. And I had one that was not so impressive called FontWorks. And uh, there were AppleWorks add-ons. Except Mark's was the big seller. Well, I don't know why, because your program was better. And any, I wanted my program ran outside of AppleWorks. It just used AppleWorks files, and Alan's macro program, of course, ran inside AppleWorks. And he knew that I really wanted to run my program inside AppleWorks. And so his uh, 
his brain went to work and he came up with uh, what eventually became Time Out. And my memory is that he wanted to sell it as a utility to let other people run programs, let anybody run a program inside AppleWorks. And I think the businessman, greedy capitalist in me said, well, hey, why don't, why don't we use it to write all kinds of cool stuff to run inside AppleWorks and not give access to other people? <laughs> I don't, do you remember it that way, Alan? Uh, I don't remember anything from back then, so that, that sounds good. I do remember some stuff, and that is that we were we were eating at the old uh, old town office. I remember we were eating, getting our uh, food from the old town deli and, and liquor store there, where they had great sandwiches. And we were talking about the name for it. We were talking about the name, and Alan, I, I think you can back me up on this: is that I lobbied hard for Time Out. Mark was against the name Time Out, and I battled yeah. hard to have the name yeah. Time Out. I was I was against it because I thought it it uh, kind of connotates, you know, you're leaving AppleWorks when you're not really leaving. You're still inside. And Randy made very persuasive arguments and at the end of many days <laughs> won that argument. <laughs> I remember do, you, that. do you remember my, my main argument that I think was the one that convinced you, Mark? I, I remember the occasion. I don't remember the details of the, okay. of the argument itself. I don't know what the current status is, but Mark used to be a—he's a tall guy, and he used to be a fine basketball player. I'm still playing hockey. I don't know, Mark. You still playing basketball? No. After a shoulder, hip, and knee surgery, and and foot surgery, I'm done with basketball. Yeah. Well, Mark was big into basketball back in the day, and so I finally won him over by saying, "Look, Mark, if you're playing basketball and you call timeout, you don't leave the game. That just means that you're you're calling a timeout. You're regrouping. Maybe you're bringing a new player in. Well, this—that's exactly what this." does in AppleWorks. You hit timeout and you bring in a new application and you run it and you're still in AppleWorks. You don't end the game, you just bring a new player in. And so that Good finally, yeah, yeah. that finally, I, yeah. you have to meet people on their own level. You know, that's my teaching yeah. background. <laughs> yeah. I had to stoop to a sports analogy to, right. to get through to Mark. But what he's, what he's saying is my level was dumb jock. <laughs> that was my level. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, the argument worked, and and uh, obviously that was a life changer for uh, for all of us uh, when when the timeout stuff launched. And uh, Alan was the the guru of that because he created the engine, but he also created the uh, monster seller. And so, tell us a little bit about the uh, motivation, incentive, and creation of Quickspell. Well, oddly enough, AppleWorks didn't come with a uh, with a spelling checker. Anyway, so I thought it was a great opportunity. There was another company called Pinpoint Software. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, they had a spelling checker, and um, it was... Um, <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. It could, it could find a word in less than an hour. <laughs> it was very slow. It was, uh, I mean, it, it did the job, you know, if you, if you had the patience for it. I, I remember um, when we first displayed Time Out at the, what was the name of that show we went to? The Apple II Apple Fest? conference. Apple Fest, yeah. yeah Apple so, Fest. Uh, so we took our um, timeout products there, and uh, and we were all displaying the products. And I noticed uh, one of the representatives from Pinpoint came over and watch it, was watching my presentation on on Quickspell. And you know, I'd pull up a document and 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 spell check the whole document, you know, and it it took probably one second. Anyway, he was. I think he was pretty appalled. <laughs> he did not have a very happy look on his face. So um, anyway, that was. Uh, the, the, those were those were the glory days. Uh, certainly, uh, when we first started out with Time Out, it was it was a lot of fun. 
Well, let, I want to so talk. I'm actually. Uh, let me. Sorry. Let me just jump in there real quick. Uh, I'm interested in in some of the technical details there. Do you know why it was that your spell checker was so much quicker? Because it was actually integrated into AppleWorks. Um, the pinpoint a spelling checker would just grab some memory. I think it actually read the read the characters off the screen, and then it would actually scroll down through the document and just read the characters on the screen because it it didn't know anything about the internals of AppleWorks like our products did. Uh, what I was going to say is that era uh, really got launched at that Apple Fest in uh, in '87, and that was uh, memor- uh, memorable for uh, for me for several reasons. I mean, one, it was just unbelievable when we got up there, how our booth just—I mean, people were just crowded around. I, I remember at one point I was signing Ultra Macros manuals, and there were 30 people lined up waiting to get manuals signed. I mean, it was just—it was definitely a rock star feeling. And Bert was up there. Mark uh, Allen, I, Rob Renstrom, I think Mark DeYoung was up there. We had we had the whole crew up there, and it was just unbelievable. And then we went to a party put on by Insider. Paul Statt was the uh, editor back then, I believe, and uh, met Waz. I'm Allen and Mark. Were you there then? Did you guys meet Waz at that party? I don't remember. I've I've met I him. I remember a, meeting him. Yeah, I met him a couple of times. I don't remember if that was one of the yeah. occasions. This is at, at that uh, kind of uh, tower thing in San Francisco, Knob Hill area, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, I was so there. So I, I went up to him and, and said, uh, you know, probably stood there with my mouth hanging open like, uh, uh. But I, I said, I'm, uh, I'm with Beagle Brothers. And he just broke into this beaming grin and said, I love Beagle Brothers. He goes, I buy two of everything you guys make. I keep yeah. one for myself and have one to give away to, to friends. So... Double sales every time from from Waz was was rather nice to hear that. I just wish I would have had a camera to to document that. But um, <laughs> so you know, at least I've got that memory right, and I've got an autograph. Thanks to Mike McGinnis on the show here, he brought me a two plus cover autograph by Waz and Randy Wigington, and traded. He asked me if I would trade for my old two plus cover, and I thought about it and said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll trade." <laughs> <laughs> but we were uh, fortunate that uh, that Waz was able to come two years ago in 2013. It was great to meet the guy face to face because I don't live in California, so it's not like I run into him at the Apple Store or anything. So uh, it was really a, a great moment, and uh, he signed all kinds of stuff. And I figured Randy wasn't going to make it that year, but uh, why not pick up a couple of things for him? Because the programs that he and, and that you guys wrote really um, had a, a big effect on on my life early on. So, Mike, I've learned that you're a terrible businessman, so uh, <laughs> I have a whole a whole bunch of uh, crap I'd like to trade for you for um, cool signed wait things. A minute. So. <laughs> Well, since it's been two and a half decades, I think I can tell a little story that I haven't told publicly before. Uh-oh. But, um, Uh-oh. I almost, my career, <laughs> I can tell a couple, but no, my, my career at Beagle almost came to a, a, a crashing halt thanks to AppleFest. Um, we, uh, we went up there, and the wives came up, and were helping set up and everything, and um, I saw a familiar-sized woman uh, walk by in the booth, and I just was going to give her a, a quick uh, quick little slap. And about six inches before making contact, I realized that it was Tony Simonson who had flown up to <laughs> surprise Mark. She, she hadn't been there, but it was, was it your birthday, Mark, I think? It was yeah, it was, yeah, my birthday happened uh, during that Apple Fest in 87. Yeah, so she didn't come up originally with us, so I had no idea she was there, but she and my wife were about the same height and, and build, and, and uh, she flew up, and I didn't know she'd landed. And I thought, wow, it could have all ended in the 1987 Kansas Fest or Apple Fest real quickly. I forgot that story. 
Yeah, we survived. And then the other impressive thing I'll, that I re- retain is just the uh, how quickly we didn't fly; we drove. And I, I drove back with Mark, and it was amazing how quickly you can go from San Francisco to San Diego with Mark at the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, guys, Quinn and uh, Mike, did you want to know any more details while you've got these guys on some of the other timeout timeout products? So I've, uh, I'm interested in, uh, this might be a little bit uh, going too far back into the, to the memory, but um, I'm actually interested in some of the technical aspects of the, the timeout stuff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how it actually worked? I mean, how did you, how did it live in memory sort of in and around AppleWorks and so on without kind of uh, in, impacting uh, negatively AppleWorks uh, and still being able to, to be used? Um. Bob Listener, he was the author of AppleWorks. The way he had developed the program, of course, the Apple II was very limited in memory. So he had um, he had a, the core part of AppleWorks, and then it would load in portions of the you know the word processor, the spreadsheet, uh, the database. He had these overlays. I just went in and did some disassembly and figured out how the the core part of it worked, and then how each one of these overlays worked, and. Um, Boy, you know, once once I figured out how to do that, it was it was easy for our applications to just all you had to do was make just a one tiny little patch. What was it? The open open Apple Escape key, I think, would just go ahead and swap in our code. You know, instead of swapping in the word processes or the database, it would swap in timeout, and then you make a, a selection on the timeout menu, and then it would just swap in um, whatever timeout application you were running. The way he wrote AppleWorks made it pretty easy to. Um, to develop all these add-ons. Okay, so you reverse, uh, so you reverse engineered the the overlay system that it, okay, yes. and then made made uh-huh. your own. That's that's really interesting. And that made uh, all the timeout modules legitimate uh, first class AppleWorks programs in the sense that as far as AppleWorks is concerned, right. it was just another part of AppleWorks calling the memory manager uh, to get yep. get the information. Once we figured out that stuff. Uh, you know, Alan did most of the the grunt work in the early days. I remember him bringing out a printout with a bunch of addresses and locations, and saying these are the things you need to watch out for. And then all of us kind of added to that that knowledge base as we researched our various areas of interest. And uh, Tom had a great comment. Um, I don't know if you remember this one, Tom, but I can't remember if you told it to me personally or if you wrote it in one of your publications. But you made the comment that we turned AppleWorks into an operating system. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, yeah, and I, and I yeah. still think it's true. It it the it became the uh, operating system for uh, for the Apple IIe and that generation of computers. And that led to and, uh, uh, to some publication stuff that involved you again, Tom. So uh, mention mention some of that. The Central series uh, had an addition as a result. Oh yes, I I know what you're talking about now. That took a moment. We started doing disk publications, and Randy was the uh, editor of one of them, Time Out Central. We had uh, several others that uh, involved software from other companies, but uh, Time Out was uh, the big one. And I, I wanted to add how important disassembly was for uh, Quinn, who's interested in the, in the technical details of how this stuff worked. ProntoDOS was developed exactly the same way. I spent... Uh, six weeks disassembling parts of DOS 3.3. And then once I had done that, I knew where all the bugs were and where all the spaces were that weren't being used and uh, was able to 
then additionally knowing the little trick for speeding up the the system, which had to do with the way it was designed, every time the disk revolved once, it was reading one little piece of it, but you could modify the way it was doing it so that instead of reading one little piece for every revolution, it would read eight pieces. Uh, And so it was eight times faster, theoretically, although it wasn't in use actually that much faster. But disassembling other people's uh, assembly uh, assembly, uh, code was how we did things in those days. Nowadays, (laughs) I I assume programs are so big nowadays you can't do that. I I haven't been been programming. uh, Nowadays, my programming is done in a statistics software called R, which is totally different from those days. Well, today they would call us hackers. I, I think that disassembly is a concept that, yeah, most programmers nowadays would, would just find completely alien. Uh, as, because as you say, yeah, I mean, uh, most of my current programming nowadays is done in, in C-sharp. And uh, it's such a high-level language that there's just, you know, megabytes and megabytes of code below below what you're writing that, uh, yeah, disassembly would just be, uh, I think, imp- an impractical exercise. But that's, uh, that's what I love about this old stuff. Do you have a sense of uh, how long that took to sort of, for example, for AppleWorks to figure out how to uh, use how to leverage the overlay system and how to hook into it. I'm assuming you had to hook into all of its uh, hooks for accessing the document data and, and memory management and so on. Uh, do you remember how long that took? I, I can tell well, you just uh, briefly, I'll just say that Alan, I, th- I believe he started right after lunch and it took him almost till dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He's the fastest no, programmer um, I knew. <laughs> as as March, Mark mentioned earlier, I actually started out with this with a different um, goal, and that was to get Mark's program to be able to work sort of like it was actually built into AppleWorks, and, and so that was my goal. But once I got into that, I thought, there came the realization, oh, you know, we could really, uh, I mean, we could we could go way beyond that. We could uh, allow almost anything to be done with AppleWorks, and as far as how long it took, that's, that's hard to say. I mean, it probably took uh, a couple of weeks anyway. Tom and I both talked about disassembly, where we would actually go into programs and see how they work. One thing that made it easier was the fact that we also programmed in assembly language back then, so um, it was pretty easy for us to uh, to sort of figure out how everything worked because that's what we were familiar with. Very cool. Yeah, a lot of us uh, still do programming assembly just because it's fun, <laughs> but uh, nobody will pay us to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, I think we'd be... Well, first of all, let me say uh, greetings to all of you guys from uh, somebody in the past, and that's Brad Wilhelmson. Um, I was on the show recently talking about our remake of IO Silver, and I talked to Brad, and he said he'd to make sure to greet everyone at the round table when I told him about that. Um, so Brad sends his, hey, there we go. Hello. Brad sends his best best wishes. Uh, and by the way, I'll be seeing uh, Alan and Melanie in, in person here. Uh, I'm having lunch with uh, my wife and I are meeting them for lunch February, what, 5th or something. Alan got the date wrong and was waiting for me a week ago. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to San Diego and going to see him and then uh, going for dinner at Bert Kersey's. So we'll see who feeds me better. But... Um, <laughs> Getting back to some of these old names, Mark, I'd like you to talk about somebody. We'd be remiss if we if we did not mention the great Howard Banger. Oh, wait, well, okay, Howard only contributed <laughs> to text tools. But no, uh, Rob Renstrom. Uh, there's some history oh. pre, pre, uh, pre-timeout. You were heavily right. involved with Rob and then timeout. So I just, would just like you to uh, talk a little bit about Rob and his contributions. Okay, one of, one of my early programs was uh, a printout 
program that lets you print graphics and various things on a variety of printers. And I was actually doing several programs at one time. I think I was working on Beagle Graphics, and this one was called Triple Dump, and maybe something else all at that time. And Bert was kind of worried that I was not going to get it all done by whatever timeline we had established. And so uh, he asked how I would feel about having Rob help me. And so uh, I agreed to that, and Rob and I agreed how to split up the software, and and uh, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly how we split it now. <laughs> but I, it was—I know that when I when I first met Rob, he was laboring over yet another printer driver. Yeah, yeah. So we had we had loads and loads of printer drivers. Yeah, I think I wrote the first few and told, and I showed Rob the little uh, layout that I had, what went where, and what what triggered the software to do what, and what described the printer to the software. And he went to town. He and we acquired a bunch of interface cards and printers, every one that we could get our hands on. And uh, yeah, Triple Dump was was actually quite a successful uh, printer dump package. Yeah, that was fun working on that with Rob. And then the work that we did on that, we used uh, large portions of it with his timeout uh, spreadsheet program and uh, my timeout super fonts and uh, timeout side print or I don't even sideways or I don't remember what we called it. What did we call it, it Randy? Side, it was side print and side uh, print. Rob's was called timeout graph. Oh yeah, timeout and, graph. Uh, I've got a little um, I've got a little timeout graph story and that is we uh, we went to an, an Apple Fest in uh, we, we had a conference I think put on by Nog National App Works User Group Dr. Warren Williams and he had got Bob Listener to uh, come to the conference and I got to do the Beagle demo because I was showing off Ultra Macros and so I made up this thing with some spreadsheet with some baseball stats and uh, I as as you probably can guess I can talk pretty fast because I used to be a high school teacher and you have to be able to talk fast and so I was doing that <laughs> with my Ultra Macros just zipping through and, and Bob was just kind of sit, sit, sitting there just kind of jaw hanging down he couldn't believe Apple Works was doing all this stuff you know hands free and uh, it culminated with graphing the statistics in timeout graph, and that's where the the demo ended. And I believe he led the applause, and uh, and said we we had turned AppleWorks into a, a whole new program, which I thought was the best compliment we could get. Bert, as you know, had a sense of humor, and he always derived great pleasure because of Rob and his girlfriend's name was Anna, and so he'd always talk about Rob Banana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those and and no one's. Everyone's lost track of Rob. I was able to 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 track down uh, you know Alan and Mark and and uh, and Brad and Mark Munns and Tom, but uh, nobody seems to know where where Rob Renstrom ended up. He's not on Facebook, so maybe someday we'll reconnect with him again. But uh, the other timeout guys or uh, Dan Verkade did several products, and I'm still in touch with him. I'll actually be spending the night with him the day that I have lunch with uh, Alan and, and Bert. Our family will uh, be staying at their house. So it's going to be a very Beagle kind of day. And then Mark Munns couldn't make it today, apparently. Uh, he wrote some of the uh, the macro-related stuff. And I mentioned Howard Bangerter earlier. He was a friend of uh, Mark's who, what did he write? He wrote like a little timer thing or something, didn't he? I think he wrote a little um, encryption. Wasn't didn't he do in, the uh, time management software in Dust Tools? Yeah, but he also didn't he do an encryptor timeout encryption? I, didn't Glenn Clausen do that one? Oh, you're right, you're right. Glenn did that one. Howard Howard did. Uh, yeah, he did the time management stuff. Yeah, only. I think <laughs> every everyone that knew Mark suddenly wanted to uh, contribute a timeout app because they saw how successful it was. I think. 
But anyway, so that kind of brings us up to, uh, you know, the close of the, the timeout era. Everything kind of wrapped up in uh, about 1990 is when we went our separate ways. Uh, the Cheetah Project got going, and uh, and uh, I moved to Colorado, and Alan went on to various jobs. Why don't we just quickly uh, give a very brief summary of the jobs we either went to or, or have now, just so everyone knows kind of where what we're doing these days. Tom. Uh, I am a uh, doctoral student at Columbia Teachers College in health education. How's that for uh, something totally new and different? Wow. Hmm. Wow. I'm impressed. And so, uh, the, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I use a statistics program called R to analyze large public health data sets. Very different from what we used to do, but it's still uh, follows this theme of uh, writing writing in computers. And I last saw Tom in person 10 years ago on a significant occasion in New York City. It was a very significant occasion. What, what was that? Randy got me into the David Letterman show. Oh. Because his son Matt was on the... Uh, oh, yeah. Stupid, stupid human tricks. Stupid human tricks. And uh, they got two tickets for Matt's parents, but his mom didn't come. So Randy let me uh, let me go. It was terrific, and Matt was terrific. And 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 Matt today is a, is a superstar, right? Well, he's a he's a rock musician, but he's mostly a superstar in mechanical engineering. He's uh, been getting a lot of A's lately, and just became a, a research fellow at the uh, uh, Colorado School of Mines. So he's doing some. Uh, Paid research in mechanical uh, engineering related to uh, housing, uh, cooling and heating, and unique phase shifting products for keeping temperatures stable at low cost, and that's that's his job while he finishes off his degrees. So it came a long way from breaking eggs. We should mention that on the David Letterman show, his trick was breaking an egg by bending his hand backwards over his uh, his forearm. That's right, and I I do have a video <laughs> of it up on Facebook. That was the last time I. Uh, that was the last time I saw Tom, and we actually went back to the to Columbia, and Matthew got really excited because he he looked around and said, "This is where they filmed Spider-Man." So, it was pretty exciting for a ten-year-old kid, and uh, and then we uh, we rounded up some eggs, and he did the trick in Tom's kitchen for uh, some of the neighboring uh, some of the other professors at the school. We had a we we had an entire performance right here in my apartment. So. Um, that was our our transition. I guess since we're talking about Matt, I'll just touch on what I did. I uh, I went on to um, do AppleWorks four and five for quality computers, and uh, did some more stuff with my Gem software. Uh, went back into teaching, taught a couple years of high school, um, including computers, and then the second year I taught a, an advanced computer programming class. And I guess my claim to fame is that every one of my Four or five advanced computer students all ended up getting computer degrees and work in, uh, in computer industry, so I didn't damage them too badly. And then I did a few other things and ended up back back at home and uh, had a couple of jobs working at home. And, and the last year, my favorite one of all, I hope to stay here for a long time. I work uh, uh, for an insurance-related uh, company out of Tallahassee, Florida. And we do high-risk um, analysis for, like, hurricane, earthquake zones, places other insurance companies don't really want to sell insurance. We have all kinds of analysis that allows us to uh, offer policies to people in high-risk areas. 
one of my recent product projects was I did a website. I did the back end stuff for Geico uh, homeowners in Alaska can get Geico homeowners insurance, and I worked on that. And then New York and Virginia. And now I'm working on some in-house stuff, a bunch of metrics stuff, for so we can analyze our performance and uh, get millions of data points and see what we need to optimize and that kind of stuff. So I'm having fun with that. And then on the side, you guys know that uh, doing IO Silver um, got me into uh, the old uh, iPhone app world, Android as well. And I'm I'm working on some other game apps of my own right now. Yeah, on the side and then doing custom web programming for some people, including Jack Friedman in New York, who became my client in 1991 or two. And uh, I'm revamping his system. And as of last week, he no longer uses uh, an Apple II. Um, he, we, we got him switched over to uh, my conversion running inside a browser and on a Mac. But up until last week, uh, he's actually still doing some backups on it while we make sure my sys- new system's working. But Apple IIGS uh, up until last week to run his business. So That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, just moving along my, the images I have here on Skype, Mark Simonson, a little bit mm-hmm. about I mean, You've had a fascinating story since Beagle days. Okay, yeah. I sold. We developed uh, a program called BeagleWorks, uh, a similar similar to AppleWorks, but for the Mac that uh, I sold to WordPerfect, moved to Utah, helped them turn it into WordPerfect Works, and then uh, they were acquired by Novell and became Novell Perfect Works. Uh, worked for Gibson Musical Instruments for a time back in Tennessee. That was a very fun uh, gig. Got to meet a lot of my uh, guitar heroes uh, from my teen years. Let's see, worked in the Bay Area um, with an internet company that did supply chain management software. Um, was in the restaurant business. I, I built uh, and owned uh, six fast food restaurants in Utah County for uh, several years. And uh, I kept asking myself, uh, what's a guy with a computer science degree and an MBA doing in the fast food business? So I sold all that and uh, was doing some... Uh, oh, also was involved with a, an internet company in uh, Provo called FlipDog that we sold to, to Monster. At the time that we sold it, it was the biggest job board on the internet. We had over a million jobs and, and a million resumes and yada yada. Anyway, Monster was very happy to buy us to get rid of the competition. Um, did a bunch of uh, independent consulting in Utah and was called about a year ago by uh, an international consulting firm based in Canada, inviting me to help them uh, with some consulting, which uh, brings me to Wyoming. I'm doing some uh, energy sector consulting and oil and gas, mostly around process safety and mechanical integrity, et cetera, et cetera. I also studied mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, design technology, and some other things. Anyway, it's been a long, strange trip, but this is where I am. Alan. Well, thank you. Um, after my Beagle Brothers days, I, uh, I actually worked with Rob Renstrom and uh, John Obrick uh, from Beagle Brothers. Uh, we had a company called... Uh, West Code. Codeworks or West Code. West yeah. Code. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry well, you guys would be helpless without my there. historical knowledge, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. You're the youngest. Anyway. <laughs> Memory still fail- yeah, not failing. Yeah. So we, uh, we had a few um, Apple II products, uh, Apple II GS products, um, which did really well. Then um, Wasn't time out, Alan? First, uh, Mac- no, no pun intended, but wasn't one of them kind of pointless? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
One of them was actually called Pointless. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a true type font uh, for the 2GS system, and we wanted to be real daring, and and so we actually called it Pointless. Uh, anyway, then I did a Mac program for them called OneClick. Um, that was my first Mac program. It took me almost three years to develop it, and it was a great program, but we didn't sell a whole lot of them, so I ended up needing a job. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I ended up uh, going to work for Qualcomm in San Diego. They were uh, a big employer, really growing at the time. And I worked for them for nine years. I, I worked on their Mac version of Eudora, which um probably the number one uh, Mac email program for, for a lot of years. And then my last four years at Qualcomm, they put me on uh, phone development. And th- these phones were nothing like uh, the smartphones we have today. They were the simple phones, and I hated it because for me it was a huge step down from desktop application development. You know, you had a, a tiny screen. You had to import Im- input using your numeric keyboard. I mean, to me it was just awful. I hated it. So then I ended up leaving Qualcomm. Uh, in 2009, I started doing um, iPhone development and have been doing that ever since. I have... Um, over 20 apps now in the uh, the App Store, so been enjoying doing that. As, kind of as a side note, so this was six years ago that I started doing iPhone development. I actually got my first iPhone for Christmas this past year. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did not actually own an iPhone myself. But Do you realize that Alan wrote, Alan wrote Time Out on a TRS-80, just so everybody knows? <laughs> no, no, I didn't have, have Apple Ts back then. But... Actually, one, th- one more thing I wanted to add is that um, uh, I did start doing Apple II development in 1984, and I've been programming for Apple com- devices almost ever since then, starting with the Apple II, uh, then the Macintosh, and, and now iOS development. So I would like to do some research and see if anyone else has actually programmed for Apple uh, computers and devices uh, more years than I have. <laughs> I might give you a run for your money there, Alan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I started on the Apple II Plus in, uh, let's see, I want to say 80 or 81. And, oh. Uh, oh, that then, was before uh, me then. And okay. I continued, yeah, through onto the Apple IIe, the 2GS, and then into the Macs. And, uh, yeah, now I'm also on iOS. Um, there was a bit of a gap there during the dark years of the Mac when, in the 90s where I wasn't doing much serious development. But, uh, yeah, so it might be a, might be a, a close call. <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, speaking of apps, do you want to uh, plug a couple of your apps? Uh, so what are some of the ones that people might know that are in the store right now? Probably my biggest seller is, is um, well, I started out, my first uh, iPhone app was a dating application. It was for a dating website. Um, Are you still married? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, I mean, I had to have an account on this uh, dating website to, uh, you know, to, for development testing and stuff. And my wife would come in, you know, and I'm scrolling through these <laughs> pictures of these people on this dating website. Anyway. Uh, but then the same company got into other applications. Probably our biggest seller has been uh, called Clipish. Uh, just we take clip art and allow you to modify it and to um, you know to, to post it on Facebook or send it in a text message or email or whatever you want to do. So that one's been highly successful. What's the name of the company? It's called Dating DNA. And all of your apps are with them. Yeah, like I said, there's over 20 of them. Uh, some of them are variations of the other ones. We also did one with animations, which is kind of fun. You, you you take a like an image of yourself, your face or something, and you actually put it inside of an animation. 
So if you look up dating DNA, I, I did all of their apps. Cool. All right. Other questions from uh, Mike. Quinn's been asking a few. Mike, you've been kind of quiet. Oh, I've just been enjoying uh, listening to the to the history. Uh, this has been great. <laughs> All right. Well, have we have we have we done the full round here on every, where everyone's at now? If uh, you guys don't have any more questions, or if any of these guys have any questions, we haven't seen much of each other the last couple of decades. Um, Tom, you look very contemplative there with your pose. Yeah, that's a contemplative pose. Uh, Tom, I do have to say. Um, your Apple, your open Apple newsletter was uh, was one of the highlights of my life back then. <laughs> when I would receive that every month, I mean, I just, I just, I would read every single word of it. Uh, there was so much good, useful information in there. I actually still have all of them uh, in printed form, and, and that so. explains why Alan needed a dating app. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alan, one of the, one of the highlights of those days for me was uh, I, I I wrote an article about the. Um, the processor that was in the 2GS, and I was asking you uh, somewhat later where you learned to, to to program that, and you said, "Oh, I just read your article. That was that was all I <laughs> all I did." And I thought, "Wow, yeah, there was some great yeah. stuff there." And I would say that one of the highlights of those conferences. Uh, oh, by the way, I met Jay Jennings, who was the main programmer on our iOS uh, uh, conversion of IO Silver. I met him at uh, at Kansas Fest. But uh, one of the highlights for me was when Tom managed to bring in Bill Mensch. Tell us a little bit about how that came about and who Bill Mensch is. Well, Bill was the uh, the owner, I guess, of uh, I think it was called Western Digital, the the company that made the 6502 processor. So that one in the GS was the 65816, and I I don't remember exactly. I think Apple was wanting to switch was threatening to switch to a different processor that wasn't from his company and or whatever. I don't know the details. But he suddenly became very interested in what we were doing and came to one of the the Kansas Fests. And then at an actual Apple Fest, I was present in the lobby when he and Jean-Louis Gasset got into this huge argument and fight. And it became pretty clear that... <laughs> They weren't going to use his, his processor anymore. Either that or Jean-Louis Gasset was not going to be at Apple because that was a huge uh, argument right there in front of uh, everybody. One of the disappointments was that uh, he talked about the 65832, which we never got to uh, never got to see, but that would have been interesting if he would have pulled off a, uh, a 2GS with a 65832 chip in it and then Mark's idea of double the vertical resolution on there. And uh, we, we we could have had quite a quite a potent little computer there. If that would have happened, we would have done AppleWorks six and had the ability to with one key switch between. I wanted to switch between a front end of graphical or text and all the memory management type stuff and your data and your files and that that could all be the same in the background. But it would have been fun to be able to to go to a nice graphical front end. But um, unfortunately, those those things came to an end and. So did the uh, the timeout series, but it was a lot of fun. It was great getting to know all you guys, and it's been great uh, kind of reliving some of that now with Mike and Quinn and some of the uh, you know like the Civil War reenactors. We've got our our Apple II reenactors going on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much for being here. It's this has been a lot of fun. 
All right. Well, that uh, that was our Beagle Brothers um, reunion roundtable, such as it was. I had a great time. We'd, uh, again, like to thank all the participants for showing up and sharing their stories and hanging out with us for a little while. I was a little starstruck because those are names that I recognize from way back when on the, on the software that I bought and the magazines that I read. Yeah, me too. I was definitely geeking out. Uh, you know, I was, I guess, fairly young when uh, that software was new, and so I was using it mainly in kind of late elementary school, early junior high, and uh, going into high school as well. And so to me, these guys were just wizards. This software was just doing things that I didn't know the Apple II could do, and I couldn't conceive of how a lot of it worked. It wasn't until years later when you know I got much better at assembly language and learned some, some real computer science types of things that uh, I can now kind of look back on it and see how it all worked. But, uh, but yeah, it was fantastic, especially growing up in a, a remote area of North America where I didn't have... Uh, direct access to these kinds of companies and people, uh, it was almost uh, academic to me. Like it's hard to imagine that there are, you know, real people just plugging away writing this stuff. Uh, it's sort of almost um, fictional uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that there's people behind these funny advertisements in the magazines that I always see. And so, yeah, it's awesome to finally actually get to talk to these people and hear the stories. Yeah, it was a good time. Definitely. Never let it be said that we don't have enough interviews on Open Apple because we have another one for you. This one's probably going to be a little bit quicker than that one. So with us today, we have uh, Andrew Rowan, and he's here to tell us what we here in the States are going to be missing by not going to Oz K-Fest. G'day, Mike. G'day, Quinn. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. Getting a bit excited down here. We are. Last week, I looked at the calendar and went, oh, my God, it's only 11 weeks until Oz K-Fest. I better do something quick. <laughs> no. And um, did a ring around and got lots of registrations in, and things are starting to happen now. So, uh, very getting very excited. Great. Uh, now, now, is this taking place at the same location as it was last year? No, this year we're in a new location. We found another suburb beginning with K in Australia. Surprising, but uh, we've got one in each city so far. And this time, we're in Keysborough in Melbourne. And we're gathering there on April 17, 18, and 19. Jason Griffith's um, work, he's kindly managed to secure that location for us. We've got a, an open area down there for breakouts and things that we're going to uh, pile into for a couple of days. How's the, uh, how's the session schedule firming up? Quite good, quite good. We've got about five things confirmed and another six or so that are on the tentative list. Sean McNamara is talking about solid-state storage. I'm not quite sure what direction that's going to take, but he's been asking everybody for input on different types of solid-state drives, etc., that people have, and uh, he's going to be giving us a rundown on the alternatives, I guess, pros and cons and each, that kind of thing. Steve Kazoulis, who was the coordinator of the last OzK Fest in Brisbane, in Karupa, is presenting a session on emulation. Uh, his tagline is, is emulation possible within an Apple II? Which sounds interesting. Sounds like okay. you're actually emulating something else within the Apple. Probably a Commodore. That'd be pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't really lose anything. Yeah, well, that, that sort of thing's been done before with the 6809 and uh, Z80 and things like that. So it's so interesting to see what, he's, what different angle he's got on. Yeah, definitely. Matt Jenkins has a session called It's Game Time. Uh, he's the guy who worked on the Ramworks clone. 
Right. Last mm-hmm. time we met, the Scramworks project for 16 megabytes of stuff. So he's pretty handy with the hardware. And he's mentioned something briefly about the game port as a bit of a teaser. He wanted the hardware that he could plug some stuff into the game port. And Alex Lukacs, who's also from Brisbane, is going to be bringing his collection of Lego interfaces for the Apple II. He's done some extensive uh, sourcing in the last year to find all the different documentation, all the different interface kits, and uh, he's amassed quite a collection, and he's going to bring it all down for us to play with. So we're looking forward to building some building some things and building some bricks, putting them together and see what we come up with. Are these uh, like vintage Lego interfaces, like the Dacta stuff from the 80s, their educational program? Lego, as I understand it, had their own interface card for the Apple II. Yeah, they did, yeah. And he's found all this stuff that he's got from that period. So, yes, it's... it's Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, some of that stuff is super rare, so that would be neat to see. Yeah, he was uh, at Kansas Fest a couple of years back, and he had, he brought that... Uh, brought the the robot project with him and we had a lot of fun playing with that and he definitely did some was able to do some some really amazing stuff uh, interfacing that to the apple II. Yeah, he showed us that uh, when we met up in brisbane had his turtle robot out and about running around on the floor we've got a number of people that are tentatively joining us that have given me session ideas but have not actually confirmed yet so these are on the on the website that you can have a look at somebody's going to talk about quick take cameras rolling your own basic using cc65 and having fun with microcontrollers what i was working on today myself is trying to get an apple 2gs up onto the internet using a terminal server and uh, that will be my project if i actually get it working i've got a host program that i'd like to run which is the complex bbs system that sean craig wrote and developed and we were playing with um, at the last OzK Fest and now I'd like to actually make it available on the internet for everybody to be able to play it rather than just over a modem line and today I was successful in talking to the terminal server via TCPIP and Telnet protocols from G-Sport emulator but I need to get the next step which is to actually get to the serial port out the back of the terminal server so I can talk to the 2GS host that's running the software. So that's my next step. So I'm still working on that. Well, you better hurry. You've only got 11 weeks left. <laughs> a 10 now. So. <laughs> <laughs> only 10 left. So what kind of, atten- <laughs> what kind of attendance are you guys expecting? Uh, look, I'm hoping for about 20. Uh, and if I get more than that, I'll be very surprised. But uh, we can accommodate that, no problem. At the moment, we've got 16 that definitely coming. And, you know, like I said, a few that need to sort some things out before they can definitely confirm. That sounds great. I certainly wish I could be there. Yeah, me too. Um, now, this is a, so a three-day event. Uh, how, much, how much are people paying to, to register? Well, um, it's a non-profit activity, so I'm covering uh, costs of the venue, incidental expenses, and uh, food on the, for lunches on the Saturday and the Sunday. So at the moment it's a it's a registration fee of fifty dollars, but if it goes lower than that, I'm prepared to refund. If it goes higher than that, then I'll be very surprised. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a good price for a three day thing. Yeah, well, it's an informal gathering. I we're really just um, 
gathering like a user group would with some people coming along to talk about what they've been actively pursuing and their passion for the last period of time and we'd like to um, share that around as much as possible and the price factors just trying to make sure that we um, that doesn't cost us anything other than getting there sure now for those who can't make it who maybe say are on another continent or something um, and are interested is there are you, do you guys record your sessions do you make them available for people to watch later on um, we don't have any plans to record the sessions, but I have asked that people who do provide a PowerPoint presentation uh, to make them available to the public after the event. Okay. In the past, that has been done on SlideShare. Um, for people who'd like to follow on the activities, I have been active on Twitter as the event has progressed, and you can follow along with us this year on hash OzKFest. 2015 OZKFEST2015. And do you have a website? We do. Um, come along and register. It is OZKFEST.net. OZKFEST.net. That's easy. Yeah, we'll have all that in the show notes for sure. So, are you, uh, are you planning any uh, surprises or anything that, um, that uh, we can look forward to? <laughs> I mean, other than what you've talked uh, talked about now, I mean, obviously you can't give away everything, but surely can't something. Can't give away everything. No. Ah, okay. Uh, All right. No. Sorry. <laughs> um, I do have a couple of giveaways for the people that have come the furthest, perhaps. That's pretty oh, okay. Okay. So, again, the dates were April? April 17, 18, and 19. So, we gather on the 17th in the afternoon for a meet and greet in person, because we usually gather on a Friday night in the IRC real-time chat, and uh, we'll do that in person this time. And then the 18th and 19th, Saturday and Sunday, we've got sessions all, all day. Okay, great. And uh, for more information and registration, again, you can go to uh, ozkfest.net. Well, thanks thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Queen. Thank you. So um, uh, it's, it's only been a couple of weeks, so we don't have a whole lot of new news to talk about, but we do have some stuff, so uh, let's get into that. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. Uh, this first item is yours, Mike. You want to start with it? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Uh, the uh, New York Times Bits blog, which I, I don't know if I knew that existed before. I mean, it makes sense, I guess. Uh, has, an, has a very interesting article by uh, Nick Winf Wingfield, and, and the article is actually from 2013. I just noticed that a little while ago, but I had never seen it before, so it's news to me, so I'm going to talk about it. There was uh, an Apple II that Steve Jobs um, donated to the SIVA Foundation all the way back in about 1980. Uh, and this Apple II apparently spent the last 33 years in a Kathmandu, Nepal, um, basement in a uh, basement of a hospital, and it was just recently returned to Loreen Powell Jobs. So, kind of a, a, a weird, wild trip for that specific Apple II. Yeah, that uh, Apple II is more well traveled than I am. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> the article interviews Larry Brilliant. Wow, great name. Although that could be tough to live up to. <laughs> Fortunately for him, he's a he's a doctor. Um, and he is the president now of, of something called Skull Global Threats Fund, a nonprofit created by Jeff Skull, uh, who is a, a co-founder of eBay. And Dr. Brilliant, 
I guess he kind of wanted to help set straight the image that that Steve Jobs had later on in life that he didn't give to charity and he wasn't a a, a very generous man by getting the story out that Jobs in fact was a philanthropist who you know gave away um, computers to to worthy to uh, to worthy charities and things like this. He talks about how Jobs wrote Dr. Brilliant a five thousand dollar check as part of the the gift of this Apple II to help him get a charity going uh, in Nepal. So uh, pretty cool. That is a good story. Definitely a good read. Well, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to one of my favorite games, Infiltrator. Do you remember Infiltrator, Mike? Uh, Very well. Uh, This was um, one of the few. (laughs) Who am I kidding? It was one of the many games that I pirated over the years. And when you get the game, there's an attack helicopter on the front of this thing. Um, It's kind of aimed at you and the guns are sort of firing and the 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 rounds are coming whizzing past you as you're staring this thing down in the dark and so it's it's easy to assume that this is just a a, a helicopter combat game because uh, there were a few flight simulator and combat simulators even on the apple II back then but there's so much more to this game there really is and for a long time i didn't actually know that i have a funny relationship with this game because of course like you i pirated it also and I didn't have the instructions for it, so I had no idea all that other stuff was there. So this was just some game I downloaded from a BBS and and was playing, and it's very difficult. The helicopter piloting section, you know, is definitely not for the faint of heart. And in fact, it has at the beginning a few actual kind of simulate kind of things you have to do. You have to start the engines and do some things like that. And I didn't know how to do any of that. So for the longest <laughs> time, I would boot the game and I would be sitting in this helicopter on the ground and have no idea what to do. And uh, it took a while to figure out all the buttons you had to mash in the right order to get the thing to take <laughs> off. And then it was months of playing before I actually realized I got good enough at the helicopter flying that I realized there was a destination. And when you get there, it's like this whole other game. And the whole other game at the end is honestly uh, a whole lot better than the helicopter flight part. Uh, (laughs) It's good in its own right, but uh, the kind of once you land at your destination, you get out of the helicopter and you're running around in this enemy facility, uh, so uh, infiltrating as they say, and you're using their stealth mechanics and there's some combat mechanics and the graphics are really great. and it's just, yeah, it's a wonderful game. I almost wish that I would could somehow jump to that part directly uh, and skip some of the uh, helicopter portions. Because, of course, <laughs> being an 80s game, it's very punishing. So once you die, you have to restart and do it all over again. Uh, but this is really a terrific game. So the uh, uh, news about it that we have here is that HNGN, which is a site I'm not familiar with, but they have an interview with the creator of Infiltrator, Chris Gray. It's a great read. He talks about uh, the creative process that he went through for developing the game. And what really struck me about this is how young he was when he wrote it. I had no idea. Did you know how young he was? No, no. And and discovering things like this is always, um, especially at that, when I was that age, it was it was both inspiring and, and completely demoralizing to, to learn that Jordan Mechner programmed Karataka when he was like 14 or something like that. And um, this probably would have done the same thing to my ego back then, except that I didn't know that Chris was 15 when he wrote this game. Yeah, that uh, for, for much of my life, I've used the excuse that, well, I never did much on the Apple II because I was so young. You know, I was, uh, <laughs> I've always said, oh, if I'd been born 10 years earlier, that would have been great because then the Apple II would have been in my kind of sweet spot career-wise. Uh, but uh, I guess I have no excuse because <laughs> Infiltrator is a vastly better game than I could probably write today. And he wrote it when he was 15. Uh, and again, with 
probably very little documentation on the Apple II and few examples to go by or role models to go by. So this is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun game. I I'd highly suggest you check it out on your favorite emulator or buy the disc. Um, I remember that the game was pretty heavily protected because it was it was it was. Chris, I guess, sold the game to Mindscape, and then EA distributed that. So, and, and both of those companies were fans of locking their games down. But the the thing is, you didn't really even need that because you didn't have the manual. Like you said, you know, even if you got the helicopter off the ground, once you arrived at your destination, there was this complex landing sequence where you had to like, you had to come to a stop and hover and then come down to like 500 feet and hover and then come down to 300 feet and hover before you could land. And if you didn't do that, even if you landed, you didn't land. You couldn't get any further than that. You couldn't get out of the helicopter. And it wasn't until I found a copy, somebody had typed up the uh, hand typed in the, the docs on a BBS that all of these things like, oh, that's what's going on here. So Yeah, I think there was a lot of that. Uh, well, in fact, I know there was a lot of that in these 80s games that there was just kind of this copy protection by game design where the games were just so difficult or so punishing or had these little tricks like how to start the engines on the helicopter that weren't intentionally designed to keep pirates from playing the game but they certainly had that effect definitely definitely and and the fact that it was a a helicopter sim at the time sort of made it difficult to fly because they tried to approximate real world physics as much as you could on a, an apple Two at the time with a small screen like that, but it could be very difficult to because you had to land flat and you had to hover, which meant not dropping or coming up in, in altitude. And if you violated that, well, you, you were you were done. In the game, and the game itself has is one of those it joins the the pantheon of great Apple II games. And what makes it so great is, in, in addition to all the, the the action and the the vari variations of the the levels and stuff, there's it's got a really great sense of humor. You you take on the mad leader, who I guess was inspired. It says in this interview was inspired by Muammar Gaddafi, who was a big deal in the news back then. And uh, you play um, James Jimbo Baby McGibbets. And when you start the game, the, you get this like telex transmission that comes through on your dot matrix printer. It prints out and it says, Jimbo Baby, we need you. And it just gets better from there. That has to be the best name for a video game protagonist in history, <laughs> I think. Absolutely. So speaking of flight simulators, Mike, uh, let's talk about Skyfox. Yeah, so this actually came up on that other podcast I do um, with Carrington, I was talking about different Apple II games, and uh, we, we were talking about Afterburner and how I kind of enjoyed. I, I I made a connection to the Afterburner game because of I like I loved Skyfox so much, and Skyfox is a, a 1984 game that was produced by Electronic Arts. As I was digging around for the history of Skyfox, I found this found the, a web page. It's uh, on. Uh, bionictoad.com awesome name there by the way uh, bionictoad.com slash skyfox and, and the guy who wrote the game talks about his history of how he uh, how he ended up getting involved with electronic arts and trip uh, and uh, it was Bill Budge that called him up and basically got him to join uh, EA and he talks about meeting Waz and Trip Hawkins and some some really neat stories in there. So definitely uh, definitely fun historical reading on the background of a, a really cool Apple II flight sim. Yeah, Mike uh, and I were talking about this before the show, and in fact he had mentioned Skyfox uh, as he said earlier, and I had actually forgotten about this game. It was one of my favorites, Aww. and so when you said that uh, name, it suddenly flashed back to me. And this game, you know, one of this it was striking is how good looking it was uh, you know it wasn't easy to get flight simulators and flight 
combat type of games that looked any good on, on a one megahertz Apple II, and this one really did. So uh, thanks for bringing up that memory, Mike. Thank you, Quinn. Usually you just bring up crappy memories, so it's... I know. I'm, I'm real good at just bringing everybody down and spoiling the party. <laughs> That's right. But uh, if I happen to spoil your party, you can watch this Brian Peachy video to feel better. Quinn, I think this is your idea. It idol. is, yeah. Brian Peachy's videos, uh, he's got a, a YouTube channel over at Tenru Nomad, and he does... Uh, sometimes he reviews Apple II games. Sometimes he talks about his own Apple II games. Uh, sometimes he does little tours of his collection. So he does different sorts of things. And this time around, he did a review of the Apple II. And you get a great look at some really interesting hardware that he has in his collection. And it's a really great rundown of the machine and the history of it. And it's just a really enjoyable watch. He's a great videographer. So any video of his is good news for me. Great. Uh, this next item I found as I was, um, and, um, and it's just, it's coincidence that it's sort of associated to something that you'll be doing. You said um, on our last episode that on, uh, was it February 2nd, that you will be up in Stanford um, doing, a, doing a class on Veronica. Yeah, that's right. Actually, as this recording goes out, uh, it will have already happened. So I'm sure it went awesome. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. Uh, but I found this article on GoStanford. Uh, com, which is the, um, I think it's their online sports newsletter for the different various teams that Stanford has, such as they are. But there's a, an interesting article, and this was uh, posted on December 27th of 2014 by David Kiefer, uh, where he, he talks about how Stanford got this Apple II and they ended up using it. It was They programmed the statistics program into it so that it could keep track of the stats of the football games as they were happening so that the announcers could just look over on the screen and call out the, the exact numbers. It's a fascinating read, and apparently this is a very a very early example of somebody doing something like this with an Apple II. And yeah, and in fact, it looks like this happened about 1980, so it would have been either an original two or a two plus, uh, certainly nothing later than that. And uh, yeah, kind of a neat story of, of, you know, because so many of us had these things and, and your friends who didn't have these computers would tease you, oh, what do you have that for? It's just good for games or whatever. And this is, this is a, an Apple II doing real work in the real world. Yeah, that was a big deal at the time. We, we think of them, of course, as primarily for games because that's what we mainly did with them uh, when we were younger. But there was definitely a lot of open questions when microcomputers and home computers were new as to what exactly they were going to be good for. We've talked about this before, but uh, with any kind of paradigm shift, you know, the world is trundling along just fine as it is. So when something like this comes along, you know, everyone's like, well, why do we need that? We already have filing cabinets and we have calculators and, you know, we have uh, accounts, ledgers. Why do we need a new way to do something that is working just fine? So uh, it's not until many years later that we all realize uh, how great it is. So they, they interview Ken Laurel. I think that's how you pronounce it, L-O-R-E-L-L. Uh, and he was their, the team's actual football statistician, and he talks a little bit. They don't go too deeply into it, but he, it's neat to see him talk about how we had this problem of, of how do we compile these stats and keep track of everything because they were just – they had what they had been doing was somebody would write it all out by hand, and then they would enter it into – a static database afterwards, and then these will be printed out for next week. But they, they had this this problem of, of well, we, we'd like to be able to give this stuff in real time as is possible. And, and so he kind of took that approach to, to, uh, to solving a problem, and, and he was successful and talks about how happy it was and how, how well it worked. Yeah, I think it's worth remembering, too, that 
a lot of these, a lot of times, you know, people didn't use these machines for real work in the early days, partly because they honestly weren't as good as the traditional methods. So in this case, it sounds like it, did, it was actually a, an improvement. But I remember with my 2 Plus, one of the first things in the realm of real work that I tried to do was organize my mom's recipes. She she liked to cook mm-hmm. and she had lots of recipes. And I had PFS, the personal filing system oh, right. software. Yeah. yeah. It was my first experience with a database and I thought it was pretty neat. So I dug out my mom's recipe card boxes and proceeded to type them all in to PFS. And it <laughs> took a very long time. Wow. And I was very proud of it, but at the end of the day, it was nearly completely useless because the fact is the Apple II is not sitting in the kitchen and you wouldn't want it to be because of risk of getting splashed and whatnot. And it isn't honestly really any better than just having the card. It doesn't look it up that much faster. And now you have to deal with floppy disks and the screen is, you know, not as easy to read as, as a piece of paper is. So, you know, it's a nice idea, but at the end of the day, it was honestly less useful than a box of recipe cards. So it's not until decades later where, you know, now I like to cook and I use my iPad exclusively for recipes. So it's perfect in the kitchen for that because it sits on the corner. It doesn't take up much space. It's easy to read. Uh, I put a piece of saran wrap across the screen, pro tip, uh, because you can still use the touch screen through uh, a thin layer of plastic like that. So you can use it with your uh, gooey fingers and it's great for that. But at the time, the Apple II Plus was not quite ready for prime time. So I uh, was a little disappointed that my mom didn't want to use it. So I went and uh, (laughs) uh, drowned my sorrows in a load runner. I remember that a lot of the appeal and the interest uh, of the Apple II, at least, you know, for for me and probably a lot of the people that I knew, kind of represented represented the, the... the great thing about it was the potential that rep- that it represented. When you saw these things, yeah, the Rolodex program that I typed in from Nibble or the the, the recipe program that came with the latest soft disk, like you said, it's, it's just not a, a a practical thing because if you want to use it, you got to go over to the desk where it is and print it out, and and it was easier just to you know for my mom to to look it up on the cards that she already had, but. Looking back now, it's easy to see where, you know, okay, that's eventually someday going to lead to a system, you know, like the iPad where, you know, when uh, a couple of summers back, the the previous co-host of the show, Ken Gagney, uh, stayed with my wife and I for a couple of months while he was out here in Denver. And that was how he cooked. And I'd, I'd heard of people doing that before. I'm not, I'm not a real big cook, but it was, it was neat to see because he would, he would just pull out the iPad and as he's, as he's cooking, you know, he's going through and, and you, it kind of clicks at that point. You go, oh, that's what all this was leading to. All these, these 50 pages of Applesoft basic that I typed in for my mom that she didn't use, you know, so, so yeah. that's making that connection is, is a really neat thing for me. And it's one of the reasons that the Apple II is still such an appealing thing for me today. Yeah, definitely. In the early days of any new technology, you know, the main users are, of course, the people who want to use the technology for the technology's sake. So there were probably cooks out there who did put the Apple II on their kitchen table and used it as a recipe device just because they loved it so much and they were motivated to try and find uses for it, uh, even if it was actually less useful. So, you know, nowadays I would liken it to the early adopters of PDAs, you know, the Palm Pilots and some of the early things that were, I mean, Palm Pilots, maybe not a good example, because it was actually pretty good. But there was some really early PDAs and Palm Top type computers. Yeah, the Newton. Uh, I have my own Newton story. But uh, and they just they just weren't, uh, they weren't as good as a paper 
agenda calendar type book like we all carried. Uh, and in fact, that agenda technology, if you like to call it that, was really well refined. I, I don't know if everybody knows this who didn't do a lot of that sort of scheduling type things, but there was there were standards. I mean the the spacing of the rings and the size of the pages and the types of pages that you could buy. It was all standardized. So you could buy the particular type of book that you wanted, cover that you wanted, and then you could buy different types of systems to go in it that would have different types of tabs and different types of calendar formats and so on. So it was really quite a refined uh, system based around dead trees. And it wasn't until quite a bit later, maybe the later Palm Pilots, but certainly with the iPhone where the technology, the new technology was sufficiently better that the late adopters and the mainstream people would finally put away the paper agenda and switch to it. So what's this about Waz and Nam? Well, let's see. I wonder if, if there was a news segment and it was all about Waz. I don't know. <laughs> it, w- would there be a name for that? I feel like we need a segment for that. What do you think? Well, I think I have one just for you, Quinn. <sighs> <laughs> so Mike has browbeat me into the Woos segment. and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in fact, I think we may even have a bumper uh, for that if it's not in there already. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, this is actually, uh, this is literally breaking news on Open Apple, which might be an Open Apple first. While while we were recording the <laughs> yeah, no uh, Beagle Brothers roundtable, this email literally came in to my, uh, to my mailbox. And it's from a user uh, whose only username is AM. So whoever you are, AM, thanks for this uh, tip. It's an- Just real quick. Just real quick, we get a lot of uh, tips, a lot of tips from AM. He sends stuff in. I assume AM is a, a male, and I'm sorry for making that assumption. We, we get a lot of news tips from AM uh, going back to the very early days of the show. So we appreciate that, AM. Thank you very much. I know we don't always acknowledge you, but it's, uh, it's, it's a great service that you provide. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for that. So AM sends us this cool link to the San Gabriel Valley Tribune, and it's an article about Steve Wozniak, uh, who makes an appearance at NAM, and NAM M N A M M is, uh, I think, the National Association of Music Merchants or something like that. It's a it's the big trade show for like guitar and amplifier companies and that sort of thing. So uh, Woz made an appearance there, and there's a nice little article about it. Neat. Yeah, that man gets around. Uh, what do we have next? Well, we've got some user feedback. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. Why don't you feed me some back? I will do that. Uh, thanks to everybody <laughs> who, who uh, hmm. thanks to everybody who writes in. We always appreciate it. If you want to write in, you can do so at podcast at open-apple.net. And uh, we do our best to respond to every single email that comes in. So thank you very much for that. Uh, first email that I have here is from listener Angela. And uh, she writes in with a fun bit of trivia that answers a burning question that we had a, a few episodes ago. We had talked about the Apple 2C carrying bag and how we both remembered distinctly it being featured in an Apple advertisement with a woman carrying it under her arm and uh, like a hat pulled down low over her face or something to that effect. Yeah. And in fact, I think we even linked to the image in that episode. The actual image? 
Yes, and it turns out we were both remembering it wrong. Uh, she's carrying the 2C under her arm, but not the bag. So we were a bit uh, baffled by this, how we both had manufactured this memory. Memory is a, a funny thing. But it turns out there was actually an image uh, that featured the bag under a woman's arm. And it was the cover of an issue of A Plus magazine. So uh, I actually didn't quite recognize this image. The the image I was thinking of was the ad that we linked to at the time. I definitely, because it it was the the woman had a certain look on her face and she had that. She was kind of mid-stride and all that. So that was definitely the image I was remembering but I did also remember the bag being in it. So I wonder if my memory has just combined these two things. Uh, and maybe I saw this A-plus cover at some point. Uh, had you? Did you recognize this cover image? Uh, not immediately, no. Okay. But, but like you said, the, the way that the brain works is, is still a mystery to, to pretty much everyone. And um, it's not the first time that at least my brain, and I'm sure everyone else's, is, has taken two memories and sort of mashed them up and come up with something else that, that didn't necessarily really exist, at least not as, not as, it, as it really was. Yeah, for sure. So I really appreciate Angela sending this in. In fact, yeah, if you cool. yeah, if you look really closely at the image, there's some interesting things about it. Uh, I wonder if it's like an early mock-up of the machine that was given to them to take the photo for the cover, or if the photo was doctored. I mean, this would have been pre-Photoshop, but you know, they certainly did lots of airbrushing and and copying and pasting uh, or cutting and pasting of things to, to to doctor images in those days as well. And because there's some funny things about the 2C that are that there that's in the this image, uh, for example, the 2C label isn't in the right place. It should be under her thumb where her thumb is in the image. So I wonder if they maybe moved that. Uh, you'd think they would maybe notice that while they were taking the photo, but who knows? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they realized, oh, we better fix that. Uh-huh. Uh, so the 2C label is in the wrong place, and the vents. Uh, yeah, the, the vent lines on the top of the case are also not in the right place. They don't align quite right. They're not centered. And yeah, there's some, there's something funny going on with this image. So I don't know if it's some kind of early prototype or if it's just a fake shot because they knew what it was going to look like and they just kind of patched it up for the photo. Maybe they couldn't get the prototype in time for the photo shoot. Who knows? But a little bit of interesting trivia there. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be it's not something that, that I really have time to do and i'm sure i'll forget about it as soon as we stop recording but uh because you know the the wonder of ebay and and the internet and uh these prototypes that do show up every now and then and and um um what's his name i'm drawing a blank on his name the guy who who was behind frog design who designed the apple 2c case um he recently published a book so you get to see some of what those prototypes actually look like somebody could probably go and compare that to what's images of what we know to be to see prototypes and see if that's what that was or if somebody just, you know, made it up or if it was a cardboard box that they painted. Yeah, good thought. I'd love to know the story there. It is interesting to, again, the way the human brain works. See, in my mind, when I, when we kept, all we could find was the woman in the yellow shirt holding an actual to see, I made the assumption that, well, I, maybe it was like a, a trade show flyer that was only handed out at, at one or two shows that was of like a coming soon and they didn't want to reveal the actual product, but they wanted to kind mm-hmm. of start building hype, mm-hmm. you know? So, so yeah, I don't, I don't know, but this is definitely uh, neat to see what she, what she sent along to us. And uh, thank you very much for that. Yeah. If any other users out there, listeners rather out there know of photos with that Apple IIc bag in them, let us know, because maybe there's some other image that Mike and I have conflated with this memory. (laughs) So uh, Angela signs off with, uh, all of this leads me to only one conclusion, I need to buy an Apple IIc.
darn you, well, of course. darn you to heck, and she does an angry fist shake. So, yes, uh, that is that is how we spread the disease, the sickness that is Apple II ownership here on OpenApple. Okay, so here's something that to to confuse it even more. As as you were we were talking about this, I was digging around in Google Images and I found I don't remember having seen this before. It's the um, we'll have the link in the show notes. It's at uh, computers.popcorn.cx and there's uh, a shot of the the manuals and the and the, the flyers that came I think with a new Apple IIc, and they're they're sort of fanned out on this blue background and and on the top of one stack is. Another shot of the woman in a yellow shirt. She's kind of walking to the left with this joyful look in her on on her face and one leg lifted, but she's carrying a box with the Apple IIc. It's an Apple IIc box. Hmm. Interesting. So there's, there's that too. So. Okay. That yeah. That might memory. That memory might be all uh, hodgepodged in there as well. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like quite a composite you and I have set up for each other, and it's kind of for for ourselves. And it's funny that that we we would arrive at the same conclusion. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, the human brain is a ooey gooey mess. It's amazing that it works at all. So yeah, I'm looking at this image now too, and yeah, look at that. She's strolling along, happy as could be, as one would be in the '80s, and she's got her shiny new <laughs> Apple IIc in in a box. So yeah, who knows? Uh, we. Uh, we might be just uh, sharing some uh, some neurons here and uh, somehow composited <laughs> oh, that same memory. <laughs> yes. Well, I've killed all the rest of mine with alcohol, so uh, apparently this shared one is the only one we have left. That's not the only 2C that we're going to talk about today, though, is it? It is not. But before we get to that, let's. Uh, oh, I got a little more feedback here. Uh, That's let's right. see. Next letter I've got is from Randy, actually, who we just had on the show. Uh, oh, yeah. So he's on the show three times in as many uh, months. Uh, Go away, Randy. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> We're going to need a Randy segment on the show pretty soon. Third third co-host. Yeah, I'll let Mike come up with a ridiculous name <laughs> for that segment. Uh, let's see. Hey. So Randy writes to let us know that the IO Silver reboot that we talked about during the roundtable there, uh, which if you have not played, you definitely should, uh, version 1.2 is out. So uh, last episode, I think it had uh, version 1.0 had just come out. So now there's an update, and it's got some new features and fixes, and there's now documentation available oh, as cool. well. Yeah, so we will link to all of that in the show notes. As, Thanks, Randy. As we do. Yes. Thank you, Randy. And let's see, we've got one more letter from uh, someone named Spitfire1500, which is a fun username. Feel free to uh, sign your emails with your first name if you want us to use it. We uh, will uh, not use your last names if not if you don't want us to. Spitfire says, hello, podcasters, long-time listener, first-time writer. Question is as follows. This is a great question. I love it. I was lucky to find a pristine box of 500 quarter inch floppy disks and was aware of the Apple II game server. If you just had 10 disks, what essentials would you put on them? Uh, now, he says, for games, I can just use the cassette port via Apple II game server. So he's more interested in the uh, serious stuff, if you will, the utilities and so on. So I find this an interesting hmm. question that a lot of us are facing. You know, you buy an Apple II on the internet. In fact, I had this same uh, conundrum recently myself because I had my new, brand new, to me, Apple IIc Plus. And of course, it had no floppies as they as they don't when you get them usually. So what do you do? What, what do you start with? For me, I started with a Protoss 8 uh, disk. There's, I think I, I think I found it on Asimov. There's an image of just a Protoss 8 formatted disk that will boot into basic system. So I started with that, immediately realized that was not very useful, and uh, went and <laughs> dug out the complete set of Apple IIc system disks that came, or the Apple IIc Plus, rather, system disks that came with it. So every 
Apple II had, you know, a pack-in set of disks that came with it. And it was usually things like there'd be like a system master and some utilities, system utilities, something like that. There'd usually be a demo disk of some sort, uh, a welcome to your Apple II kind of thing. Some of the early ones had demos on how, how to use the keyboard and some really basic stuff like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Mike? What would you include in the essentials? Well, it sounds like maybe we're being asked if, you know, I just bought a 2C that has no disk, what do I do? Kind of like where you were. Uh, so obviously the first thing you're going to want is a copy of ADT Pro. You'll need um, you need the software to, to run on your, your more modern platform. It's Java-based, so it'll run on anything. It'll run Java. And with that and the appropriate cables, I think for the Apple II, you can do it with a, a null modem cable through a, a super serial card. You can do it through the audio ports, the audio, the cassette jacks. There may have been another method on the two. On the three, you don't have the audio jacks, but you do have a built-in serial port. And, and what you can do with the, that and a blank, uh, and I don't think you even need a blank disk to start. Um, you turn the computer on, you hit control reset to get yourself a, a, a prompt and you type in this this little machine language program then you run it and that tells ADT Pro on the desktop to begin sending code and what's being sent is um, kind of a bootloader that'll write itself to a diskette and boom now you've got a you've got a, a floppy with ADT Pro and you can start transferring your disks the disks that I would want uh, obviously you want the you know the system master DOS 3.3 system master the ProDOS um, users disks things things like that but I think probably something like Locksmith or EDD so that I could uh, begin fast, quickly copying disks if I wanted to transfer software that way. Um, my big, the thing that I loved more than anything else hardware-wise on, on my Apple IIe was was uh, the Senior Prom copy card. So I, I had that, that which comes with a, a utilities disk and an extensive manual. So I always had that handy. And then um, I'm trying to think of what else I, I might have... Might have had um, yeah, Apple Works. I, yeah, Apple um, Works is great. I would throw Copy2 Plus in there. I mean, that's just oh, yeah. a, a mm -hmm. great general purpose utility thing. I mean, it's all not just for copying disks. It does all kinds of stuff as well, you know, formats, and you can uh, manipulate disks in all kinds of useful ways. Um, Procell is uh, kind of everyone's favorite ProDOS file selector. So if you have a bunch of smaller programs you want to put on a single disk, Procell is a great way to give yourself a little selector for them. So I guess it really is down to what you want to do with the machine. If you want to just play games, then obviously, you know, just go and download all your favorite games. Uh, although he says he's planning to use Apple II Game Server for that. So uh, for, yeah, the utilities, I think it's fun to play with uh, AppleWorks. And I would even maybe fire up ProTerm. Uh, you know, that, yeah. was, that, that was an awesome piece of software. I really enjoyed using that. I guess there's not a whole lot you can do with it these days, not having a BBS, but uh, it certainly can be used over serial cable. Uh, you can talk to your, you know, your desktop PC or Mac with it, uh, and you know you could log into your Mac with it and do some fun stuff that way. So uh, yeah, as far as ADT Pro, you know, that, uh, we'll link to that of course in the show notes. And I actually recently wrote a blog post about doing exactly that with my own 2C Plus, getting that started up. Uh, I used it with. Uh, technically not a null modem cable, but just a serial cable that uh, converts to USB for connecting to a modern machine. And uh, it's a super easy process. The documentation on the ADT Pro site is great. He's got videos up there how to use it all. Uh, really easy to get going. So we'll link to all that. One, uh, one of the things that I had, um, and this is not, it's out there now, but at the time you kind of, Kind of had to know somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody. Um, there was a program called uh, Beautiful Boot by the Midwest Pirates Guild. Mm, yes, and Beautiful what Boot. This, 
Yep. And what this was, it basically, it had a, um, a scrolling star background and, and sound. It replaced the normal DOS 3.3 bootloader code. And so you, it booted up almost immediately and it booted right into a menu of whatever was on the disk. And so if you had this, you could, you could build your own disks with your kind of you know, your utility suites and your music suite and a few games and, or your word processors. So these days, um, there, and, and Jason Scott over on his, uh, his, uh, text files, ASCII blog has a neat little write up on it. And the guy that who wrote it is still out there. And I think he's got a blog that where he talks about how he developed it, but if you can, if you can grab yourself a copy of that, if you really want to, if you're kind of the person who likes to organize your menus and your your stuff, that's a, a fun little tool to play with. It's a neat piece of code. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah, I'll try and dig up that article because I also read that, uh, and it was a really interesting read. There's some nice technical details in there on, on how it works. It does some really clever tricks with uh, track zero and so on to just eliminate a couple of extra spins of the disk. You know, it does some very clever things, and it is amazing. I mean, you fire up a a, a disk that has beautiful boot on it and uh, you do a double take you're like was that already in memory like it just kind of appears (laughs) it's really yeah it's wonderful to look at you you had mentioned uh proterm and proterm was not a program that i i I ever used back then Uh, my choice was uh ascii express uh, also called ae pro or the professional just not really used for a modem anymore because there's not much you can dial up these days but uh, it sounds like Proterm had this too. With ASCII Express, you can put it put it in, in terminal emulation mode and make it talk through the serial port. So, if you did want terminal communication to your desktop, which you could then use to tunnel out to the to the real quote real internet, very limited, but you could do that if if that's your thing. So there is a communications method built in. Um, if you're if you're doing 2GS stuff, you want to stop by Ewan Wanop's webpage. He's got a, a whole lot of neat. Uh, internet-enabled utilities for the Apple IIgs, and you'll want to get your hands on a... You can either do the terminal emula- emulation like we've been talking about, or you can, if you can find one, you can get yourself an Ethernet card, which will allow Ethernet communications for your IIgs. And, and you can do email, Usenet browsing. There's a whole bunch of stuff that, that uh, he's got there, and you can start exploring on his webpage. I'll also throw out, speaking of terminal communications, something else you can do with Proterm or ASCII Express is talk to other devices that have uh, serial ports on them. You know, this is something, uh, you know, I think we have a few people of uh, my similar bent in our audience who are interested in hacking uh, Arduinos and microcontrollers and so on. And the bitbangers. Um, yes, and the Raspberry Pis and so on. All of these types of hobbyist uh, devices, they very often have RS-232 serial ports on them intended for debugging uh, with your, uh, so you can run code on them that you're developing and you can get some kind of output off of the board so you can see what your program is doing because otherwise it can be difficult to debug the software that you're writing. Well, you can hook those same ports up and uh, to your Apple II. And in fact, it's easier because with, you know, a modern machine, you have to get some kind of crazy converter to go to USB. You know, computers don't have RS-232 serial ports on them anymore, but your Apple II sure does. And so you can plug your Apple II into your Arduino or your Raspberry Pi and uh, directly talk to it uh, over the serial port. So that's a fun thing you can do as well. Cool. And uh, the other thing I'll throw out there is if you have any kind of mass storage device, either a CFFA or if it's an Apple IIc, maybe you've got uh, an SD floppy, something like that. Or uh, I guess, I don't know if the SD floppy would support this, but I believe the UniS disk from Nishida Radio does. You can Google around for uh, 32 megabyte Protoss partitions. People have made these things. That was the maximum partition size. And you can find these uh, 
image, disk image files of a 32 megabyte partition that people have made that has tons of stuff already on it for you to get going with. So it'll boot into uh, into Protoss and it'll have lots of system utilities, probably some games. Uh, so there are kind of good starter kits out there as well. So Google for that. Since we're talking about those those 32 meg Protoss uh, partitions, the, the pre-made ones, that, that reminds me... Um, what is the Apple IIGS, which is kind of the, the all-in-one, everything you need to know about Apple IIGS software website that's run by uh, Alex Lee. He has a bunch of those, and they're, they're arranged so that it's, you know, he's got one that's, that's action and adventure games, and he's got another one that's word processing and, and productivity, and another one that's nothing but boot extension. So I, I highly recommend stopping by there when you're trying to track these things down. He's got, they're pre-configured. They're ready to go. You can either load them into your, into your favorite emulator, or you can you know, reconstitute them into to actual partitions on whatever spinning media you're using in your 2GS these days. Yeah, we'll link to that site. Alex's site is one of my favorite Apple II sites, hands down. It's fantastic. We need to have him on the show. We should. He's, in fact, partially to blame for my return (laughs) to retro computing. A few years ago when I was thinking about, uh, I was feeling nostalgic, and the Apple II GS was always my favorite computer that I had owned. But it's such an obscure computer for, you know, non-Apple II people. Nobody's heard of it. And so I was just Googling around one day wondering if uh, there was any information online about that thing. Uh, It was to the point where I was starting to wonder if I'd imagined this amazing computer (laughs) from my youth that nobody else seemed to have ever heard of. And I found his site, and it was just wonderful to cruise through there and and look at all the old uh, disk images and the box art and all the fantastic stuff he's got on there. So thank you very much for that site, Alex, and we hope you keep maintaining that. Well, that was a long one, but do we have any more feedback? Uh, last one from user Flefflef. <laughs> Once again, feel <laughs> nice. free to leave your first names in the emails, folks. Uh, saves me having to interpret wacky, wacky usernames. Uh, so Flefflef, I'm including this one just uh, as vindication. He uh, wrote that uh, two months after the fact, he got around to digging up our episode of uh, Open Apple 40.5, I think it was, where we tried to do some voice commentary for an episode of the Goldbergs. Right. And yeah. so he apparently is one of the few people who actually dug up that episode and queued it up with uh, episode 40.5 of Open Apple and watched it with us. And he said it was great. So thank you very much, Flef Flef, for taking the <laughs> effort to do that. It's nice to know at least somebody did. Yeah, according to the feedback, it was sort of a mixed bag, the, the final results. Some people liked it, some weren't so crazy about it, and that's fine. Um, we're glad that, that Flef Flef and the others who enjoyed it, who did enjoy it, uh, did, uh, did so and, and are telling us about it. Thank you very much. Yeah, so that's all I have for feedback. We've got one quick eBay item on this show that we don't talk about eBay on, so let's roll into that. Look, rare, Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. So I found this link uh, made its way onto Facebook. It is a a new inbox Apple 2C+. So, of course, the reason we don't talk about eBay on the show is that we're a monthly show and any eBay auction that comes up is going to be long gone by the time we air. And that is the case with this one as well. But it's such an interesting auction that I just had to share it. It is, as I say, a new inbox Apple IIc Plus. Uh, the boxes have been opened, but the computer has never been used, according to the seller. So it's all still in the original sealed plastic bags and so on inside. Uh, just the tape seal has been broken on the boxes themselves. 
and it is just gorgeous. It uh, it was getting bid up. Uh, it had a buy it now on it of I think twelve hundred and fifty dollars, something like that U.S. And people had been bidding it up, bidding it up, bidding it up, and somebody just walked in and did the buy it now, so it went quick. And honestly, I think someone got a very good deal, uh, twelve fifty for a new inbox Apple IIc Plus. Uh, if I had seen that in time, I didn't see it until after it had closed. I would have had a very hard time not clicking that buy it now myself. <laughs> so whoever you are who got that IIc Plus, uh, well done you. Uh, it is just beautiful to look at. Definitely having the original boxes and the original, you know, if you're if you're a collector, Quinn, you and I tend to be you know, hands-on play, tinker and stuff. But there's there's a segment of the community out there that's that's really into the collection part of of our hobby, and for them, they're the ones who want the you know original box with all of the manuals and the original styrofoam and the pink bag and the the the, the power the correct matching power cord and and the more. Uh, the more complete the packages are and containing all that stuff, and if they're unopened and undamaged, that really can drive the value up as as we see here. Uh, for me personally, I you know I would love to have something like that. I don't know how long I would be able to resist you know just having it sit there before I just tore into it and started like I got to use this thing. Um, you know, so that's that's not really a segment of, of the of the market I get into too much, but it's it's neat to watch, and I certainly understand the appeal of. Somebody who wants, you know, not just the 2C, but the box it came in and, and the receipts, you know, from, from the store it was purchased at and the business card of the guy who sold it to you and the monitor in box with the same condition and matching serial numbers and everything. So, yeah, I, I do. That, that's, yeah, that's certainly appealing. Yeah, I guess in a sense, it would, it would have almost been wasted on me. Like yourself, I'm much more of a user than a collector. So... I would have immediately cracked it open and, and fired it up. I would have been like, woohoo, just shredding the box and, you know, throwing plastic <laughs> everywhere, yeah. <laughs> tearing up the styrofoam. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a, a couple of years ago, I guess it was now, there was a, uh, someone did an unboxing video of an Apple IIc that was still sealed in boxes that they had purchased. Yeah, 2600 bucks or something. Yeah, something like that. And yeah, that, he was interviewed. He was interviewed in, in an issue with Juice GS. We'll have the, the mm. particular one in the show notes, but cool. it's kind of, it was kind of funny hearing, you know, the, the story about him buying it. And yes, he, he did in fact open and use it. And yeah, that would have been me as well. So, I mean, because of that, knowing that that's what I would do with it, I wouldn't have paid $2,500 for the, oh, goodness, uh, the, no. the 2C. But 1200 for the 2C Plus, boy, that's right on the edge of where I might actually just pull the trigger just because I love having something so shiny and new so much mm -hmm. that uh, the idea of having uh, the best of both worlds, something shiny and brand new, it would still have that new computer smell and also be <laughs> a beloved Apple II. That that would I, that might be worth twelve hundred dollars to me. I don't know. You can just smell the nineteen eighty seven. That's right. Yeah, it would have actual nineteen eighties air inside those bags. <laughs> Think about that. It'd be like crazy. Like yeah, pet shop boys and wham would just oh, like man. waft out of these bags. <laughs> George Michael just comes popping out of the box. <laughs> That's right. Welcome to your new Apple II. What are you doing here? <laughs> All right, that's all we have for eBay. Let's move on to my personal favorite segment, Weird Gaming. You know Choplifter? You know Loadrunner? But do you know this? It's time for a weird game. Yeah, I'm really getting into this segment. I have like a huge list of games now that I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, all right, well, why don't you start with one of yours since I've been talking a lot. Okay, so uh, last month we talked about uh, Acalabeth and how it was free on goodoldgames.com and a little bit of the history of that. Well, uh, I was digging around and I came across um, Jimmy Myers' 
excellent blog, of course, and he has a, a, a write-up. <clears throat> excuse me, a write-up of a game called Escape. And this is a game. This game is spelled with the exclamation point. There's another game called Escape that came out in like '86 or '87. It was published by Bantam, and it's based on one of those uh, choose your own adventure books. And that'll be for another weird game segment because I want to talk about that one too. But the one that he's referring to was written by Silas Warner at Muse Software in 1980, well, not 1980, it'd be like 77 or 78. Uh, and it has that same forward-looking perspective that you see in a Calibeth, uh, only this one, this is in color. It's green, got the chunky green, low-res greens and browns. And and apparently this is part, was partially inspiration for Lord British for, for how a Calibeth ended up looking, obviously. You know, um, if you search the history of a Calibeth, this was actually the 28th Dungeons and Dragons game that he had written, but the the look and the feel of how Escape plays really had a heavy influence on Acalabeth. So uh, check out the Digital Antiquarian's article on it. It's simply called Escape with an exclamation point, and it's from uh, January 23rd, 2012, and of course we'll have a link in the show notes. Well, and when we talk about the other game that you mentioned, then we'll be the only podcast probably ever to have discussed both Escape and Escape. <laughs> That's true, Yep. Yeah not to confuse those two games. <laughs> All right, so the uh, entry that I have for this month's Weird Gaming is a game called In Search of the Most Amazing Thing. This was an educational game by Spinnaker Software, and they were doing some very innovative and interesting things with uh, educational software at the time. This was before the term edutainment uh, was a thing, and this was just part of that era like we were talking about where everyone's trying to figure out, hey, these microcomputers are really neat. What can we do with them? Uh, is there anything useful that can be done with them? And lots of people, of course, thought, well, maybe we can uh, teach students with them. And Spinnaker cool. really took that idea and ran with it. And they made all these uh, educational types of games. So this was... I hated Spinnaker. <laughs> did you? Oh, they, they, did. they made some neat stuff. I thought their they... games were neat. You didn't like uh, Snooper Troops? Looking back, uh, they were a great company. And people understood that one way to to motivate kids to, to learn things was to make it fun and feel less like learning and more like play. And But it was always such – and Muse – or not Muse, uh, Mech and some of these other companies were the same way. You'd pop the disc in and, and you'd be playing for a little while and eventually it would dawn in, hey, they're trying to teach me something here. <laughs> and for whatever reason, at that point, I would make the decision that it sucked and I would never play it again. So <laughs> Yeah, I hear what you're saying. There was definitely – I don't know if they were Mech games or not, but there was definitely some that we played in school – where things like Math Blasters uh, was one yeah. that sticks in my mind, where uh, it was immediately obvious that, oh, you're just trying to teach me arithmetic and make it crazy fun, because right. then I won't know I'm learning. And I refuse to learn. <laughs> yes, and yeah, kids immediately see through that and go, this is, yeah, this is not a game. Stop trying to make yep. this uh, be a game. But uh, Mac also did some really uh, innovative, crazy things as well, so credit where it's due there. But uh, so, but yeah, back to Spinnaker. Uh, the one one annoying thing I found with Spinnaker was that their boxes were different than everybody else's. Mm -hmm. Most software came in kind of consistently sized, relatively speaking, game boxes, but Spinnaker software came in these things that were like uh, VHS cases in terms of, uh, they were big plastic things, like clamshells, I guess they call them, uh, these plastic clamshells that close, and they were about the size of like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, maybe even larger. So they were 
they were large and awkward and bulky plastic things. So I guess if you had a collection of Spinnaker software, they would all line up nicely together. But if it was the only piece of Spinnaker software you had, it was really annoying because it didn't fit on the shelf and it was stuck out past all your other boxes and things. You know, that was a problem that, that lasted for a long, long time. It was certainly wasn't just Apple II software, you know, and, and then when box software kind of went away, even like DVD special edition box sets, you know, that's got like a, a, a Terminator bust in it, which is <laughs> totally awesome. But where am I going to put this? It yes. doesn't fit on the shelf and yeah. I can't really stick it on the end here. And it's just stupid. And I have this, I have this Blade Runner. Um, when the Blu-ray first came out, they had this like metal um, snap case. It was like a briefcase and you open it up and it had all this really cool stuff inside, but it's like, where do I put this thing? And it's something I constantly trip over and I kick and I'm just, I'm almost at the point where I'm just going to throw it away and put the discs in like little plastic jewel cases or something. I'm so annoyed with it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And a lot of the software companies were trying to, trying to create their own standards. I guess it was part of the branding to create a distinctive packaging format. And, yeah, well, uh, it worked really well with, with Infocom, and I think they, yes. went, they went, oh, we need to do that. Yeah, yeah, and EA did it as well. They had their record albums uh, type of yep. packaging that they did, and those I liked a lot because they fit really nicely on the shelf, and you could line them all up, and your software didn't take a lot of space, but you could still see what everything was. They were great, but uh, my software all lived on a shelf uh, that was screwed to the wall above the Apple II, and until the day that the Apple II went away, that In Search of the Most Amazing Thing box was sitting up there annoying me because it didn't fit anywhere. <laughs> Just staring back malevolently at you. Yes. The, um, yeah, they, I, I think there's, you know, as with anything, there's a right way to do things in the wrong way. And companies like Infocom and EA understood that you could make these packages and not piss people off and then Spinnaker just didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. Too busy trying to trick kids into learning stuff. So, all right. Well, we've beat them up on the packaging. Let's actually talk <laughs> about the game. I really loved this game. So this was one of the very f actually few games that I legitimately owned because my parents bought it for me because educational. And right. uh, so, yeah, I had no say in it. Uh, my father brought this thing home one day and it actually uh, turned out to be a lot of fun. Now, like a lot of educational software, visually, this game is nothing special to look at. It's actually one of the ugliest Apple II games that you will find. However, it actually is a tremendous amount of fun to play. So the basic premise of it is that you are it's sort of, I guess it's in the future, it's science fiction, and you, uh, your uncle is old and uh, he was on this quest for the most amazing thing and he spent his life trying to find this thing and he never did and he's getting old now so he wants you to take up the quest on his behalf and so he gives you this special vehicle that he's built for the purpose of searching for this thing and it's basically a combination of uh, a camper and hot air balloon so it has like sleeping quarters in the bottom of it uh, and it will drive on the ground as well it has wheels and then it has a hot air balloon on the top and you start out uh, it's I guess on this sort of just slightly dystopian future everybody lives underground and you start out in this underground cavern uh, slash apartment that you share with your uncle and there's uh, shops under there and there's a marketplace and you start, start out by going shopping and equipping your uh, vehicle with special uh, computer programs and attachments that it might need and you can earn money by uh, trading things in the market. Your uncle gives you a bunch of artifacts that he's found in his travels and he trades them, uh, lets you, gives them to you to trade for money. 
And then you set off and you can either drive around, which is very, very slow, or you can fly the hot air balloon, which is very fast, but a lot more challenging. And the what's striking about this game is how huge it is. The world, it's, I guess nowadays we would call it an open world game. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, wow. It's just each, it's, yeah, it's sort of a series of screens. If you drive off, once you get up to the planet's surface, you drive in any direction and you drive to the edge of the screen and then it moves over and then you have a new screen and each screen has some trees and some rocks and stuff on it that you can explore. And, uh, but I never found the end of this game. It just goes and goes and goes. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm assuming it's something like Elite, uh, which, you know, was procedurally generating the environment so that it could be as large as a 16-bit integer would allow. And I'm sure it's one of those as well, but it was so huge. I never came close to solving this game, honestly. Uh, but you travel from all over different parts of this planet and you find different civilizations and each civilization has their own currency. And so you learn all about currency conversion and then different cultures have different kinds of marketplaces and stock prices and uh, stock markets. And so you do a lot of bartering and trading and buying and selling stock and all these different currencies. So these are kinds of things the game is sneakily teaching you. (laughs) And then the game also teaches you some physics uh, to fly the hot air balloon. You have to negotiate wind currents at different altitudes and understand kind of thermal effects of how the hot air balloon moves up and down and this sort of thing. So it's teaching you all this stuff at the same time. So it's really quite a good game if you can get past the uh, disappointing visuals of it. There's uh, there's a really good game in there, hiding in there. But it's very difficult, and it's very, very long. And I never came close to finishing it, but I played a lot of this game. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I will link to a, a YouTube video that has a great summary of this game. Uh, so people can see it for themselves. And I'm sure it's an easy thing to find on Asimov or whatever if you are interested in giving it a try. I have a, I have one more title here, and, and this is the actual Weird Games title that I wanted to talk about. The other was just sort of a, an historical note to an item we'd mentioned last month. And I, as you were talking, it, it sort of occurred to me that what annoyed me about a lot of most of these educational games was that they were, you know, like you said, they were so focused on trying to teach you whatever it was that that the gameplay suffered for it. It was clunky, it was obvious, it was stupid, whatever, you know. And, and it just, it, when you do that, if it doesn't meld, you know, the kids pick up on it immediately and it's just crap. The game that I want to talk about is actually also by Mindscape. We talked about Infiltrator being <clears throat> Infiltrator being from Mindscape. But this is this is uh, called the Halley Project, and the idea is that you play um, you play an astronaut that's been invited into this um, secret series of of tests to explore your knowledge uh, of the solar system and how well you can get around in it. And the way it works is is they will give you clues about where you're going next to your next mission. You have to figure out where that is, how to get there, and how to land. And as you play, you 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 begin to learn things about uh, the solar system and the planets and a little bit about space physics and things like that. But the, the idea behind it is is that as you're doing this, you're learning about the solar system and you're getting basic astronomy lessons that, that you would give a, you know, a junior high or, or early high school kid. And it, the game is it's a little bit simplistic and it kind of has to be just because you know you're dealing with a lot of this stuff with Apple IIs and 8-bit Ataris. And so like it, it's all... It's on a flat plane, the, the solar system in, in this world, but it's done in such a way that you don't really you don't really notice the, the flaws. And, and I played this game a lot when I was a kid, and, and I had a lot of fun exploring it again for, for this. You can play it. Uh, it's over on the Virtual Apple emulator, the, the one online. One of the, the neat things about it was that it came with, in addition to the disc and the packaging, it came with this, this cassette, and you would 
put your cassette in your Walkman and turn it on. It was like eight or ten minutes long, and that's where you got your mission briefing from. Now, at one point, there was a waiver MP3 file floating around of the um, audio, and I haven't been able to find that recently. If you search around for it, I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to find it. But uh, I thought that was just kind of a, a kind of a cool thing because it was like ooh, secret plans, you know, this tape will self destruct in two minutes. Or obviously, it wasn't Mission Impossible, but it gave it kind of that feel because you're this astronaut being given these these secret missions. And in addition to to the secret missions, there's there's a secret secret mission, and that's the eleventh mission where you have to make it through the top ten. And um, as you play, you get you get clues that kind of help you to your goal. And and as and built into these clues are are is the knowledge that you will you will need to to identify your next target, obviously, and then land there and and learn something as as well. Yeah, it's funny these games both have that kind of mystery in common. Uh, I I didn't bring this up. Uh, earlier but in search of the most amazing thing they never they never actually tell you what this thing is that you're finding that you're looking for and you literally don't know until you solve the game and to this day i i've never seen a playthrough of it or anything so i honestly have no idea what the final (laughs) thing is it drove me nuts when i was when i was eight years old but uh uh, these days, I'm less bothered by it. Uh, and the other thing I think that these two games are great examples of is is this kind of uh, soft learning. I'm a huge believer in educational software, but I think it doesn't work if it's taken too literally. Like, you know, it's Space Invaders, but there's math problems stuck on top <laughs> of the invaders, which seem to be so often the approach. I think video games are much better at teaching these kinds of soft skills. And in fact, often games that aren't even supposed to be ostensibly educational are the best at that. You know, in modern terms, for example, I think real-time strategy games like StarCraft and WarCraft and so on uh, are incredibly educational. You know, they teach you resource management and time management and these kinds of things that, uh, you know, are just, yeah, they teach you that type of thing so effectively how to optimize a a complex system uh, for efficiency uh, to get the most out of it. You know, these types of skills that are difficult to teach probably in a traditional classroom setting compared to teaching, you know, arithmetic or or vocabulary. So I think that's where video games uh, really excel. So uh, these these games are both great examples of that. All right. Uh, well, that, uh, that's the end of our weird game section. I don't see anything on the spreadsheet here for, for tech this month. Uh, is there anything in particular you wanted to talk about before we signed off? No, I've got some cool things coming up in tech, but uh, I think for this month that uh, just about wraps us up. Well, I think that's a good length, you know, especially with the uh, the, the awesome roundtable that we just had. So uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you in a month. Bye, everybody. been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Can everybody see this really hot girl on Alan's app?